Hello everyone. This this episode will be my last mentions of sex, religion, and organized crime. You can tell by the inner peace in my voice and my inner life at rest that this is the day that I start my two-month break from talking about this subject, these three subjects, sex, religion, organized crime, and I resume talking about these subjects again on June 28th. But before I start the episode, I want to make it clear that when I talk about these three subjects again, it won't be about my life. It'll just be in general. Because everything I mentioned about the sexual trauma of my past and how I'm moving sexually forward will already be told, especially after this episode. And everything about organized crime will be told after this episode about my life. And my views on religion will be solidified after this episode. So when I talk about these three subjects again, it'll just be in general, not autobiographical like they were. So without further ado, let me start with religion. This is www.npr.org. This came out March 10, 2010. I think I did this article before. But I tend to do old articles in newer episodes so you can get newer insights on what I think. That way you can always get, like I keep saying, the new out of the old so you won't be bored and I won't be bored either. This is uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is the author of more than a dozen books, including Misquoting Jesus and God's Problem, Harper One. Um, published the books for him. This is March 12, 2010, 12 p.m. Heard on Fresh Air. This is Jesus and the Hidden Contradictions of the Gospels. Whew! Bible scholar Bart Ehrman began his studies at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Originally an evangelical Christian, Bart Ehrman believed that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. But later, as a student at Princeton Theological Seminary, Bart Ehrman started reading the Bible with a more historical approach and analyzing contradictions in the Gospels. So, here's how that path, that path, those par- that paragraph makes me feel. Growing up, I too was taught that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible completely divinely breathed, completely divinely inspired word of God. However, as I have done my own credible research, I've came to an entirely different conclusion for myself because of the ambiguity of the Bible, the inconsistencies of the Bible, and the frailties of the Bible. 
Ehrman, the author of Jesus Interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible and why we don't know about them, tells Terry Gross that he discourages readers from smashing the four gospels and the smashing the four gospels into one big gospel and thinking that they get the true understanding. I think that is a wise approach because it's easy to look at the Gospels as all one and the same, but different authors have different agendas, different curriculums, or different syllabuses, if you will. Let's keep going. When Matthew was writing, he didn't intend for somebody to interpret his gospel in light of what some other authors said. He had his own message, Ehrman says. Notice, his own gospel, not Jesus's own gospel. So they talk in church, they talk about the, the gospel. But how do human beings have their own gospels? And then you tell people, Jesus is gospel. That, that is a, that causes theological bewilderment and religious befuddlement. Because many evangelical-minded people value the Bible writers more than they value Jesus. They make the Bible writers God over Jesus. They think that the Bible writers died on the cross for their sins. They think that the Bible writers rose on the third day to be raised for eternal life so they can have eternal life much more abundantly with them. They think that the Bible writers was 12 years old teaching the religious leaders while his their parents were away. They think that the Bible writers performed the miracles and taught the teachings and illustrated the parables. Let's keep going. To illustrate the differences between the Gospels, Bart Ehrman offers opposing depictions of Jesus talking about himself. In the book of John, Jesus talks about himself and proclaims who he is, saying, I am the bread of life. Whereas in Mark, Jesus teaches principally about the coming kingdom and hardly ever mentions himself directly. These differences offer clues into the perspectives of the authors and the errors, E-R-A-S, in which they wrote their respective gospels according to Ehrman. So, the fact that there had to, they felt that they had to make four gospels, it shows that there was a lot of redundancy needlessly and there may have been a lot of fill on a lot of sentence fragments um, 
a lot of run-on sentences and and the gospels comes to the Bible, its utterances are questionable, its declarations are questionable, its assertions are questionable, its proclamations are questionable, its statements are questionable, its articulation is questionable, its verbalization is questionable. Um, I see questionable diction, questionable style, questionable choice of words, questionable turn of phrases, questionable wording, um, questionable phrasing, questionable phraseology, questionable language, questionable delivery, questionable execution, questionable speech, questionable intonation, questionable tone. Uh, questionable circulation, questionable communication, questionable publication, questionable promulgation. And notice, it's about the perspectives of the authors and not the perspectives of Jesus. Then it goes on to say, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is not interested in teaching about himself. But when you read John's gospel, that's virtually the one thing Jesus talks about is who he is, what his identity is, where he came from, Ehrman says. This is completely unlike anything that you find in Mark or in Matthew and Luke. And historically, it creates all sorts of problems because if the historical Jesus actually went around saying that he was God, it's very hard to believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out that part, you know, as if that part wasn't important to mention. But in fact, they don't mention it. And so this view of the divinity of Jesus on his own lips is found only in our latest gospel, the Gospel of John. So what that makes me think is, is that The Bible writers were people who valued their philosophy, their philosophies more than Jesus' philosophies. They valued their ideologies more than Jesus' ideologies. And they valued their theologies more than Jesus' theology.
This is an excerpt, Jesus Interrupted. Chapter 4. Students taking a college-level Bible course for the first time often find it surprising that we don't know who wrote most of the books of the New Testament. How could that be? Don't these books all have the authors' names attached to them? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of Paul, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. How could the wrong names be attached to books of Scripture? Isn't this the word of God? If someone wrote a book claiming to be Paul while knowing full well that he wasn't Paul, isn't that lying? Can scriptures contain lies? Um, so I'm going to answer the questions. Yes, there are some lies in scripture. Um, it is lying if you claim to be someone that you're not. And it's still a lie, even if it's literature. And it's the Bible is not completely the word of God. And the wrong names are attached to scripture for world domination purposes. And the books of the Bible have pseudonym authors' names attached to them not the real author's names attached to them. And the names of the books according to Bible scholars are filled with Fraudulent imitation, falsification, faking, fabrication, coining, fraudulent copying, and counterfeiting. And then Ehrman says, When I arrived at seminary, I was fully armed and ready for the onslaught on my faith by liberal biblical scholars who are going to insist on such crazy ideas. Let me read it the way he was really thinking. When I arrived at seminary, I was just fully armed and ready for the onslaught on my faith by these liberal biblical scholars who are going to insist on such crazy ideas. Having been trained in conservative circles, I knew that these views were standard ferret places like Princeton Theological Seminary, but what did they know, bunch of liberals? I'm, I'm proud to be a liberal. I'm proud to be a progressive. And I'm proud to have ideas that are considered crazy. And us liberal progressive people, we're live and let live, so nothing, we don't do anything malicious to religious people. Notice, they're in and out of churches every Sunday. Does anything happen to their church? No. Some of us drive by churches, walk by churches, wheelchair by churches, and the church is still intact. So we're not the church bombers. We're not shooting up churches. We're not setting churches on fire because we're not arsonists. We work 
with church people on the job and nothing bad happens to them or their loved ones. We go to sporting events and non-sporting events with church people and they keep going because we keep allowing them to live peacefully because we honor their human rights regardless of our views on what they believe. Hmm. Then it says, What came as a shock to me over time was just how little actual evidence there is for the traditional ascriptions of authorship that I had always taken for granted how much real evidence there was that many of these ascriptions are wrong. It turned out the liberals actually had something to say and had evidence to back it up. They weren't simply involved in destructive wishful thinking and destructive magical thinking. Because... The truth is, it's easy to have all things your religion occult by simply choosing to lack study skills regarding the religion you practice. It takes courageous work ethic to lovingly challenge. the beliefs that are treasurable to you. It's sad that most people don't read the Bible to challenge their bigotries, challenge their prejudices, challenge their discriminatory attitudes, and challenge their discriminatory policies, and challenge their discriminatory laws, and challenge their elitist, tribalistic favoritism. They don't even use the Bible to challenge their hard-heartedness of the haughty spirits that they are. It goes on to say, there were some books such as the Gospels that have been written anonymously, only let it be ascribed to certain authors who probably did not write them, apostles and friends of the apostles. Other books were written by authors who flat out claimed to be someone they weren't. So there is a such thing, apparently, as biblical imposter syndrome. So all of this causes biblical betrayal trauma and biblical Stockholm syndrome. In this chapter, Bart says, I like to explain the evidences. Who wrote the Gospels? Though it is evidently not the sort of thing pastors normally tell their congregations for over a century, there has been a broad consensus among scholars that many of the books of the New Testament were not written by the people whose names are attached to them. So if that is the case, who did write them? So... When people hold dear to all the beliefs they've been taught and never challenged them, they're also suffering from Biblical Peter Pan Syndrome. Bart says, these are the preliminary observations, the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. As we have just seen, the Gospels are filled with discrepancies large and small. Why are there so many differences among the four Gospels? 
These books are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they were traditionally thought to have been written by Matthew, a disciple who was a tax collector. John, the beloved, the beloved disciple in quotations, mentioned the fourth gospel. Mark, the secretary of the disciple Peter, and Luke, the traveling companion of Paul. These traditions can be traced back to about a century after the books were written. So, the Bible has instances of it being filled with distortions, manipulations, uh, tampering, fudgings, alterations, adulterations, debasement, perversion, corruption, misrepresentations, vid vitiations, misapplications, inventions, fabrications, uh, doctoring, and negative changing. But if Matthew and John were both written by earthly disciples of Jesus, why are they so very different on all sorts of levels? Why do they contain so many contradictions? Why do they have such fundamentally different views of who Jesus was? In Matthew, Jesus comes into being when he is conceived or born of a virgin. Actually, I'll stop right there. The word virgin in this case does not mean a person never had sex. Back then, virgin simply meant unmarried young woman. Okay, she's a young woman. Um, That's all it meant, just young woman. In John, Jesus is the incarnate word of God who was with God in the beginning and through whom the universe was made. I also want, I just remembered something. There's a mistranslation of the word virgin young woman Mary, not never had sex Mary. In Matthew, there's not a word about Jesus being God. In John, that's precisely who he is. In Matthew, Jesus teaches about the coming kingdom of God and almost never about himself and never that he is divine. In John, Jesus teaches almost exclusively about himself, especially his divinity. In Matthew, Jesus refuses to perform miracles in order to prove his identity. In John, That is practically the only reason he does miracles. Um, It also goes to show that the Bible lacks superb writing skills. The Bible lacks excellent sentence structures. Um, Excellent punctuation. Excellent capitalization. And excellent excellent comprehension 
of its own language. Because when we mistranslate words, that means there could be a lack of excellent spelling. There could be a lack of excellent handwriting. Or there could be a lack of excellent interpretation of the spelling, capitalization, punctuation, handwriting, and central structure when it comes to the Bible if you're a, mistran- if you're a mistranslator. So... That's what I've noticed about scripture. Did two of the earthly fathers of Jesus really have such radically different understandings of who he was? It is possible. Two people who served in the administration of George W. Bush may well have radically different views about him, though I doubt anyone would call him divine. This raises an important methodological point that I want to stress before discussing the evidence for the authorship of the Gospels. Well, this is the biblical version of Opposite Day. And this is the biblical version of I know you are, but what am I? Bart says, why did the tradition eventually arise that these books were written by apostles and companions of the apostles? In part, it was in order to assure readers that they were written by eyewitnesses and companions of eyewitnesses. An eyewitness could be trusted to relate the truth of what actually happened in Jesus' life. But the reality is that eyewitnesses cannot be trusted to give historically accurate accounts. They never could be trusted and can't be trusted still. If eyewitnesses always gave historically accurate accounts, we would have no need for law courts. If we needed to find out what actually happened when a crime was committed, we could just ask someone. Real-life legal cases require multiple eyewitnesses because eyewitnesses' testimonies differ. If two eyewitnesses in a court of law were to differ as much as Matthew and John, imagine how hard it would be to reach a judgment. Um... Yeah, I think that the eyewitness dilemma, it causes accounts to be blurry, blurred, indistinct, unclear, bleary, misty, distorted, out of focus, unfocused, lacking definition, low resolution, nebulous, ill-defined, indefinite. Vague, hazy, imprecise, inexact, loose, and woolly. Um, A further reality is that all the Gospels are written anonymously and none of the writers claim to be an eyewitness. Names are attached to the titles of the Gospels. The Gospel according to Matthew. But these titles are later editions of the Gospels provided by editors and scribes to inform readers who the editors thought were the authorities buying the different versions. That the titles are not original to the Gospels themselves should be clear upon some simple reflection. Whoever wrote Matthew did not call it the Gospel according to Matthew. The persons who gave it that title are telling you who, in their opinion, wrote it. Authors never title their books according to... Hmm... That makes me think 
that the Bible writers' writings causes me to feel misgivings, doubts, qualms, wariness, chariness, reservations, hesitation, skepticism, uncertainty, question, question marks, leeriness, distrust, mistrust, and a lack of faith in them. Because of the suspicion that I'm feeling inside. Moreover, Matthew's gospel is written completely in the third person about what, quote-unquote, they, Jesus, and the disciples were doing, never about what, quote-unquote, we, Jesus, and the rest of us were doing. Even when this gospel narrates the event of Matthew being called to become a disciple, it talks about, quote-unquote, him, not about, quote-unquote, me. Read the account for yourself, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. There's not a thing in it that would make you suspect the author is talking about himself. So, to me, that means that those particular Bible writings are... Bad, substandard, poor, inferior, second-rate, second-class, unpleasant, disagreeable, unwelcome, unfortunate, unfavorable, unlucky, adverse, nasty, terrible, dreadful, awful, grim, distressing, regrettable, and parlous. Not good at all. Um, With John, it is even more clear. At the end of the gospel, the author says of the beloved disciple... This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. John chapter 21, verse 24. Note how the author differentiates between his source of information. The disciples who testifies in himself, we know that his testimony is true. He slash we, this author, is not the disciple. He claims to have gotten some of his information from the disciple. As for the other Gospels, Mark was said to be not a disciple, but a companion of Peter, and Luke was a companion of Paul, who also was not a disciple. Even if they had been disciples, it would not guarantee the object, the objectivity or truthfulness of their stories. But in fact, none of the writers was an eyewitness, and none of them claims to be who then wrote these books. Ooh. That's why I tend to avoid gullibility, gullibleness, naivete, naiveness. Um, Overtrustfulness. Credulousness, credulity. cult-like blind faith. Here we go. According to the uh, according to the Barna study, an estimated 3,500 people leave the church each day. 
and more than 4,000 churches are forced to close their doors every year. There are 250,000 Protestant churches in America. 80% of them have no growth in attendance or they are showing a decline. Most of this decline has taken place since 1950 with a full third of our churches closing the doors for good. That lets me know that So I did this article before, but you'll get something new out of it. This is grunge.com, The Dark Side of Megachurches, by Jeff Summers, updated May 20th, 2022, 11.38 a.m. East Coast Time. The concept of the quote-unquote megachurch, generally defined as a church, almost always Protestant Christian, with a regular congregation of at least 2,000 or more, is still new enough to seem strange to outsiders. It's even strange to me, and I used to be a regular attendee of the Alpha Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and I used to be a member of the First Baptist Church of Glen Arden. While there have been churches with very large congregations throughout history. The earliest congregations that could fit the mold of a megachurch date back to just the mid-19th century. Even so, for more than a century, these enormous churches remained outliers and exceptions. Um, I used to be a regular attendee of Evangel Cathedral. And when I was in Leesburg, Florida, I remember being a regular attendee of First Baptist Church of Leesburg. Then it says, Mega churches became a phenomenon in the mid-20th century. Nearly all of the churches currently considered mega churches were established after 1955. But these oversized houses of worship didn't really take off until the 1980s. Since that decade, the number of megachurches in the U.S. and their average congregation size has increased year on year. What that makes me think is that even church, a lot of church people, I should say, confuse quantity for quality because 
in order to have it hunky-dory, which is not what kingdom discipleship entails, I'll call myself Christian in terms of labeling. But to actually suffer for Jesus, be rejected for Jesus, be uncomfortable for Jesus, lose materialism for Jesus, lose my career for Jesus. They negotiate with Jesus to make sure those things never happen to them. For many, mega churches are positive for both individuals seeking spiritual engagement and communities that benefit from the programs and services these churches provide. Um, I never truly understood that when I was in the mega church world because I saw broken heartedness every Sunday in terms of demeanor, facial expression, and a lack of ministerial participation and a lack of church involvement um, when it came to a lot of the members that I was around every Sunday. Um, I could tell that in the mega church world, um, often people don't get the proper help they need. Often people don't get the proper care that they need. Like if somebody were to die, most people in the church wouldn't be around to be available to be on the person's deathbed with them. Or let's say they're about to go in for surgery. The church, you know, in terms of the people, wouldn't be around to uh, give their um, church family support. Um, It's like when people also often have situations that happen to them it could be personal setbacks it could be divorce proceedings it could be struggling with parenting children it could be toxic relatives the church family wouldn't be there to help make referrals, to help provide the support, uh, to help them make sure that they get in proper um, environments that best suit them in terms of mental health and in terms of assistance that they need. Um, it was... I never fully enjoyed going to church ever um, because I noticed that role-playing is the most common in the megachurch world more than the small church world. And I do acknowledge that, yes, there are plenty of people in church that experience healing they're set free from 
from personal turbulence and they get delivered from a lot of turmoil but I say most people that I've went to church with me knowing people getting vibes from people talking with people being around people most people in the church world that I was in church with were not set free were not healed and not delivered so most people leave a church in my view they leave out more unhealed than they were when they first came in unhealed they leave out more not delivered than they were were when they first came in not delivered they come in enslaved leave out more enslaved once they leave because in a large church you don't know that a member could have committed suicide because the church is so big you would hear through the grapevine you may not always hear about it right away it could be The member may have killed themselves five months ago. Five months later, you're hearing about it. And the funeral already happened. And when you have a big church, like a mega church, your church really can't be there for the funeral unless you have it at the mega church. If your family decides to have a funeral outside the mega church, your church family can't come. Or should I say won't come because it's too big. Let me keep going. Mega churches make worship an entertaining, spectacular experience shared with a large audience and bring people together. But as the phenomenon has grown in popularity, problems have arisen. It's fair to say that any large movement organization will have its share of downsides, but the quote-unquote mega in mega churches means those downsides those downsides can be pretty huge. Here's the dark side of megachurches. So in other words, they lack mega faith. They lack mega trust, mega hope, um, mega discipleship, and being a mega miracle for a downcast world. They lack mega commitment. They're not mega meat, meaning they're not spiritual meat. They're mega milk, meaning they're spiritual milk. And so they don't have um, mega compassion. They don't have mega love. They don't have mega grace. They don't have mega mercy. They don't have mega forgiveness. They don't have mega repentance. They don't have mega redemption. They don't have mega kindness. They don't have mega faithfulness. They don't have mega gentleness. They don't have mega generosity. They don't have mega self-control. They don't have mega joy. They don't have mega patience. 
They don't have mega courage. They don't have mega bravery. They don't have mega heroism. They don't have mega Christ-likeness. They don't have mega godliness. They don't have mega empathy. They don't have mega sympathy. And, um... Then it gets more intense. Mega churches spread the prosperity gospel. Um... When you think of mega churches, chances are you think of a slick, smiling pastor standing in front of a huge crowd, probably wearing a really nice suit, and that pastor probably travels around in a private plane, you can say private jet, and lives in a mansion, you can also say yacht, because many mega churches are associated with what's known as the prosperity gospel. I call it a heresy. I call it blasphemy. If I were talking to church people, I would call that the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. As explained by Vox, the prosperity gospel is a concept that boils down to a belief that God rewards faith with material success. In other words, if you pray hard enough, God will make you rich. Jesus walked around in public in the marketplaces with the crowds of people wearing sandals. And he relied on the kindness of strangers and the women were bankrolling his ministry. And he left his regular income job when he was working with his hands as a builder or a craftsman. But somehow they got the prosperity gospel from that. So their aporophobia, which means their phobia against poor people, meaning they are phobic against Jesus. Jesus was poor. If that seems a little counter to traditional Christian concepts, you'll be correct. It excuses any societal inequalities it puts the blame for being poor on you personally the implication is that if you're suffering you don't have enough faith they are just as idiotic as job's friends in the book of job if job were around to that today he would lay his bare hands on them non-peacefully speaking. And it also shows that they refuse to grieve with people. They refuse to be empaths when it comes to people. They refuse to be in intuitives when it comes to people. They refuse to be fully human with people. And they are 
angry, unrighteously speaking, at the oppressed. But they feel like it's God's will for us to bless the oppressors, stress the oppressed, not bless the oppressed, curse the oppressed. Mm. As Vox also explains, it provides cover for greedy pastors. Guys like Joel Osteen, pastor of the megachurch Lakewood Church worth about $50 million, don't have to hide the money they get from the church because their wealth is simply a sign of their holiness and faith. Now, I actually met Joel Osteen, and it's on my Instagram. Um, My first impression of him when I met him, he seemed to be kind-hearted. So I'm not warring against Joel Osteen. Um, What I'm talking about here is how uh, the megachurch culture needs a shit ton of reformation. And the obsession with undemocratic capitalism is so fucked up that it needs to be strongly eradicated. And it says, in fact, some have speculated that the subprime housing crisis of 2008 was in part caused by prosperity, gospel-believing people who took on mortgages they couldn't afford because they reasoned God was rewarding their faith. And it's not unique to the U.S. As Reuters notes, the wealth of megachurch pastors in Africa have been controversial for years now. Um, it's Christianized economic abuse. It's religionized economic terrorism. And it's churchified economic violence. They encourage self they encourage selfishness. It's easy to assume that the folks who join mega churches are extremely religious and spiritual. Church going is, after all, baked into the fabric of a North American life, with churches traditionally serving as centers of communities. The idea that only good, dedicated Christians make the time to attend church services automatically lends a superficial air of piety to mega churches. But as noted by Pastor Jeremy Howard. The teachings at megachurches often contradict the traditional Christian concept of service and charity. Instead, megachurches encourage a selfish and self-focused view of worship. The members of megachurch congregations are often taught to focus on their own existence and problems instead of seeing themselves as servants who should help their fellow human beings. They are in turn encouraged to view God as a vehicle for their ambitions. This goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel, often at the core of megachurch theology. The idea that God rewards faith with material goods and success. 
As noted by the Journal Standard, the congregations at megachurches tend to be younger than traditional churches and are more likely to be single. At most tellingly, 45% of megachurch members fail to volunteer to serve their community, underscoring the focus of the self that is celebrated at these large services. What are my thoughts on that? The church is avoiding Jesus. The church keeps away from Jesus. The church flees from Jesus. The church abstains from Jesus. The church shrinks from Jesus. The church escapes from Jesus. The church evades Jesus. The church shuns Jesus. The church eludes Jesus. The church dodges Jesus. The church gives Jesus the pink slip. The church draws back from Jesus. The church holds off Jesus. The church turns aside from Jesus. The church recoils from Jesus. The church keeps Jesus at arm's length. The church withdraws Jesus. The church backs out of Jesus. The church shirks Jesus. The church lets Jesus alone. The church keeps out of the way of Jesus. The church keeps clear of Jesus. The church keeps Jesus at a disrespectful distance. The church lets Jesus well enough alone. Or should I say the church lets Jesus poor enough alone. The church keeps Jesus in the background. The church keeps their distance from Jesus. The church keeps away from Jesus. The church refrains from Jesus. The church steers clear of Jesus. The church layoffs Jesus. The church passes up Jesus. The church shakes off Jesus. The church refuses to face Jesus. The church refuses to meet Jesus. And the church refuses to undertake Jesus. Mega churches are eroding our sense of community. In a traditional church, services are fairly intimate. A small town church or even a neighborhood church in a large city might have a congregation of a few dozen or a few hundred people, most of whom live in close proximity as neighbors. But in a mega church, literally thousands of people attend splashy, slickly produced services with more frequently watching on television. As noted by Premier Christianity, this tends to encourage quote-unquote spectator worship because the crowds are so large, the majority of the attendees do not actively participate, much less get to know each other. The anonymity enjoyed by congregants is seen as a, feature, is seen as a feature of megachurches as it makes stepping inside for the first time a safe, comfortable experience, but also means that there is very little sense of community. The experience is more similar to attending a show. In fact, most megachurches put a lot of effort into passively entertaining the attendees. So it's so in megachurches, they, they, they're basically saying without saying it, it's okay to not know the people that call themselves Christians that you're worshiping with on earth, but you only get to fully know them in heaven. 
I in in mega churches teach people to call the wrong people friends and to call the wrong people family. Because you can sit behind somebody in front of somebody or beside somebody and not know anything about them and not know the real them and not even know their names not even know their favorite hobbies or their favorite colors you can literally be around them and the only time you talk to them is when the pastor tells you to tell your neighbor or pass the peace If you don't take the time to get to know them, that doesn't mean be a busybody or nosy. What I'm saying is, if you don't take the time to know them as human beings, you could be calling a perpetrator or predator your family or your friend if you're not careful. Pastor Jeremy Howard points out how this encourages people to stay within themselves because they can hide in the crowd, enjoy the show, and feel zero obligation to engage or take part. Although tens of thousands of people might attend services at a megachurch over the course of a week, they rarely meet each other, interact, inhibiting any sense of community. Uh, to me, that means that the church babbles when it comes to Jesus. The church talks incoherently when it comes to Jesus. The church talks foolishly when it comes to Jesus. The church rants irresponsibly when it comes to Jesus. The church raves without accountability when it comes to Jesus. The church gossips about Jesus. The church murmurs about Jesus. The church goes on and on needlessly about the Jesus they created and not the real Jesus. The church gushes about Jesus from a a standpoint of dictatorship over Jesus. The church runs off at the mouth of Pharisaism Jesus. The church talk off the top of our heads about churchianity Jesus the church rattles on about Christian nationalist Jesus
And lastly, the church blurts out. Fascism Jesus. Mega churches turn worship into entertainment. Anyone who raises a Christian probably has a childhood memory of being bored to tears in church and possibly being scolded for causing a fuss. Be honest, one of the reasons why I don't go to church because it caused me intellectual boredom, spiritual boredom, psychological boredom and men and emotional boredom um my desire to be at the time christ-like to people that were not in the faith and even to people who have been scarred and marred by life the preaching did not complimented that and insulted that and everything about the church did not compliment that. It insulted that. Then it says, Worship services were never intended to be fun or exciting. They're intended to be instructive to bind people together in faith and reinforce the precepts of Christianity. Well, what's fun and exciting, to, what was considered fun and exciting to me when I was in the church world was... Spending time with atheists and spending time with unconventional people. And I would all, at the time I felt to myself, I grow in God with unbelievers and non-believers more than I grow in God with believers and theists. In fact, I said to myself, I never grew in God with believers and theists when I was in the church, but always grew in God with unbelievers and unbelievers. This is what I was saying to myself before I left the church for good. But as noted by religion news, mega churches have evolved to become more like entertainment venues. Their services are often staged in arenas and large theaters that accommodate thousands of worshipers and have extremely high production values. As a direct result, society has increasingly conflated church services with entertainment. Pastor Jeremy Howard notes how the need to keep mega church congregants entertained has driven increasingly absurd stunts like the mega church that dropped Easter candy from a helicopter, the one that staged a Christmas celebration using characters from the Disney film Frozen. Howard explains that this focus on performance and spectacle is antithetical to actual Christian teaching, which states that your actions are meaningless without faith and humility. It also leads to an escalating quote-unquote hype as the need to keep worshipers entertained drives increasing entertainment value over spiritual content, rendering worship meaningless. After all, if you can't tell whether you're at church or quote-unquote frozen on ice, what does worship mean anymore? The church copulates with hypocrisy. 
the church sleeps with hypocrisy. The church makes love to hypocrisy. The church goes to bed with hypocrisy. The church unites with hypocrisy. The church is considers itself a cute couple with hypocrisy. The church covers for hypocrisy. The church lies with hypocrisy. The church knows hypocrisy. The church has relations with hypocrisy. The church has sexual relations with hypocrisy. The church has marital relations with hypocrisy. The church has extramarital relations with hypocrisy. The church is carnal thanks to hypocrisy. The church has carnal knowledge of hypocrisy. The church unites sexually with hypocrisy. The church has sexual intercourse with hypocrisy. The church has intercourse with hypocrisy. The church has sex with hypocrisy. The church breeds on a breeding farm with hypocrisy. The church cohabitates with hypocrisy. The church fornicates with hypocrisy. The church fools around with hypocrisy. The church and hypocrisy do it. The church and hypocrisy make it. The church hypocrisy get it on. The church does not abstain when it comes to hypocrisy. The church is not celibate when it comes to hypocrisy. And the church and hypocrisy basically have their continent, come to think of it, all their seven continents. The, the hypocrisy is everywhere. The church is mating with hypocrisy. The church has coitus with hypocrisy. Church engages in sex acts with hypocrisy. The church is, is in sexual union with hypocrisy. The church has sexual congress with, with hypocrisy. The church has coitus with hypocrisy. And the church is coupling with hypocrisy. They run like corporations. Considering how much money is involved in megachurch, according to Fox Business, some rake in hundreds of millions of dollars every year, primarily from voluntary donations called tithes. It isn't too surprising that they're often run like businesses, but all churches exhort donations from their members. So the fact that megachurches benefit from economies of scale isn't too surprising. Um... As noted by Forbes, the pastors of these churches act more like CEOs than spiritual leaders, and megachurches routinely establish media and publicity teams to help them maintain their congregation, even grow it. In fact, an entire industry has grown up around helping megachurches become even more mega. But megachurches have two advantages over traditional corporations. Once they're exempt from many taxes into, which I have a problem with, I think, I, 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 I value taxing the churches, okay? If secular people got to pay and non-Christians who are of faith have to pay, then Christians should pay too. Let me keep going. They benefit from a large volume of unpaid volunteers who often devote much of their time to working on the church's behalf. The dark side, the dark side to this corporate, corporatization of religion is how focused on growth the mega churches have become. It's noted by MSNBC. Some mega churches are exploring setting up satellite branches that act almost like franchises, causing a kind of Walmart effect as they take worshipers away from the traditional local church. 
How does all this make me feel? The church needs spiritual correction, spiritual revision, spiritual examination, spiritual rereading, spiritual rewriting, spiritual remodeling, spiritual rectification, spiritual editing, spiritual writing, spiritual reparations, spiritual mending, spiritual fixing, spiritual amending, spiritual changing, spiritual repairs. The church needs to be cured. And I also like to say that the church has to stop being panicky, stop being cowardly, uh, stop being afraid, stop being timid. And stop being faint-hearted, too. Mega churches turn pastors into celebrities. One of the most notable differences between mega churches and more traditional churches with smaller congregations is the celebrity status of the pastors. While it makes sense that anyone who appears in front of an audience of thousands every day, as well as a uh, as well as on television, would become somewhat famous. The dark side of the celebrity status is that a shocking number of pastors implode as a direct result. As reported by Relevant Magazine, the list of megachurch pastors who have been removed from their jobs due to inappropriate behavior, illegal behavior, and unethical behavior is shockingly long. Perry Noble, once pastor of New Spring Church, resigned when his alcoholism began to affect his ability to lead his congregation. Darren Patrick was removed as pastor of the Journey Megachurch after his behavior, including extramarital affairs, became impossible to ignore, and he later died by suicide. Even Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Titrigian, resigned in scandal due to an extramarital affair, as did Hillsong Church's pastor Carl Lentz, who himself has a history of infidelity. Being a pastor of a megachurch is often likened to being the CEO of a corporation, and many pastors feel incredible pressure. It's also an extremely ass-isolating position, as literally every aspect of your damn life comes to involve the church and its members at the same time the pastors of these megachurches are treated like rock stars. So in other words, the church lacks courtesy. The church lacks courteous conduct. The church lacks kindness. The church lacks friendliness. The church lacks affability. The church lacks courteousness. The church lacks gentleness. The church lacks consideration. The church lacks thoughtfulness. The church lacks geniality. The church lacks cordiality. The church lacks graciousness. The church lacks tact. The church lacks good manners. The church lacks politeness. The church lacks refinement. The church lacks gallantry. The church lacks chivalry. The church lacks um, respect. The church lacks self-respect. The church lacks deference. The church lacks polished manners. The church lacks good breeding when it comes to character. The church lacks charitable acts. 
church lacks generosity. The church lacks sympathy. The church lacks gentleness. The church lacks favor. The church lacks polite gestures. The church lacks courteous acts. The church suffers from apprehension, fearfulness, and lack of courage. Megachurch pastors are increasingly political. Religion has always been intertwined with politics, and religious leaders have always tried to exert influence over their congregation of various issues. In my estimation, um, the IRS fails to punish churches for violating the not influencing your congregation to side with a particular political party. Republicans. (laughs) And that is just detrimental to a core value of North America called the separation of church and state. We don't want the return of Constantine. A pastor exhorting his, his, her, or their congregation to vote according to Christian values is one thing. A pastor using their position to push a specific agenda is something else. But one dark aspect of the growing influence of megachurches is how their pastors are involving their congregations in politics. As reported by The Intercept, several megachurches banded together in an effort to re-elect Donald Trump, who refused to call president, in 2020. Some of the members of this coalition openly support the idea that the United States was never meant to have a separation of church and state, that its government should be explicitly Christian, Only assholes believe that. As Texas Monthly reports that some megachurch pastors like Robert Jeffries act more like campaign officials and spiritual leaders explicitly supporting Republican candidates in elections. Uh, Megachurches have also led the way in politicizing the COVID-19 pandemic and taking sides in culture war issues, in quotations. Los Angeles Times reports that megachurch pastor John MacArthur has not only resisted orders that congregants wear masks, but it's not that there's any pandemic at all. So I refuse to call John MacArthur a pastor because he doesn't live up to it. I refuse to call Robert Jeffries a pastor because he doesn't live up to it. They tend to side with Make America Great Again and... I call it, they want to make America fake again. And as noted by the independent, other megachurches have been fined for flagrantly ignoring pandemic rules designed to protect the public. So, the church has turned itself into the cult of unnecessary death. And I must say this, the church is spiritually crippled, spiritually maimed, spiritually mutilated, spiritually mangled, spiritually deformed, and spiritually disabled. 
They're quietly racist. Their supporters, one of the major benefits of megachurches is their diversity. Because they're designed to welcome newcomers and have such large congregations, they often have or openly support multiracial congregations. And as reported by the New York Times, many black churchgoers sought out these megachurches out of a sense of duty to be missionaries of a newly integrated worship service. But as noted by the Daily Beast, many of these parishioners are leaving these megachurches as they exhibit increasingly explicit conservative politics. There's difference between uh, conservatism and far right. So it's actually explicit far right politics. Now, many black members of megachurch congregation have begun to lead them. For, for some, the, the way evangelical churches... I don't call them evangelical. I call them Pharisee churches. Supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election and beyond was untenable. untenable. But for many, the racism they experienced went back much further. According to Baptist News Global, 27% of black practicing Christians felt pressure to give up their racial identity in order to fit in. And 28% found it difficult to build relationships and fit in. This is exacerbated by the fact that megachurch leadership is overwhelmingly white. As a result, even when blacks and other minorities are invited to join and participate in the megachurch, they're usually expected to quote-unquote code switch and change their clothing and behavior to conform. The irony is that as more black parishioners leave, the megachurches become increasingly lily-white. The church is critical of Jesus. The church is disapproving Jesus. The church is fault-finding Jesus. The church is trenchant towards Jesus. The church is derogatory towards Jesus. The church is disproving Jesus. The church is hypercritical towards Jesus. The church is sarcastically satirical towards Jesus. The churches mean spiritedly demanding against Jesus. The church is cynical about Jesus. The church is nagging Jesus. The church is scolding Jesus. The church is condemning Jesus. The church is censuring Jesus. The church is reproachful to Jesus. The church is disparaging Jesus. The church is sharp cutting Jesus. The church is biting Jesus. The church is exacting Jesus. Church is just is indecisive about Jesus. The church thinks that Jesus is insignificant. The church deems Jesus to be unimportant. The church is not discerning when it comes to Jesus. The church is incapable of, of observing and judging Jesus correctly. The church is misperceptive about Jesus. The church refuses to spiritually penetrate Jesus. The church fails to be discreet about its phoniness when it comes to Jesus. The church fails to be crucial Regarding the upholding of Jesus. The church is trying to dismantle Jesus.
The church refuses to be reformed by Jesus. Mega churches encourage abusive environments. In an ideal world, your church should be a sanctuary, whatever your spiritual beliefs. Attending church should be an opportunity to reflect, meditate on your existence, and seek the support of a like-minded community and a wise spiritual leader. Unfortunately, many mega churches created abusive, harmful environments instead. As noted by Vanity Fair, after Carl Lentz was fired as the pastor of Hillsong Church, Stories of high-ranking church officials having inappropriate sexual affairs with volunteers along with stories of physical, verbal, and emotional abuse that result in a culture of silence and fear began to surface. I want to say that some people would call the sexual affairs sexual abuse because of the hierarchical power dynamics. And as noted by Vox, Lentz and Hillsong are hardly alone when it comes to pastors having sex scandals and megachurches being revealed as hotbeds of inappropriate behavior, illegal behavior, and abusive environments. The dark atmosphere hidden beneath the glitz and glamour of many megachurches doesn't stop at horny pastors, though. The Columbus Dispatch reports that in 2019, the pastor of Christ Community Chapel in Ohio was fired when allegations of sexual abuse at an orphanage run by the megachurch came to light. An NBC News reports that a megachurch in Louisiana ran boot camps in quotations where teenagers were forced to perform dangerous physical tasks until they vomited, meaning throw up or puking, if you will. Minorities and women were taunted with hateful slurs and, and, and any teen suspected of being gay was emotionally abused for days. And that's exactly how they treat transgendered people. The church is committing domestic violence against Jesus. The church is victimizing Jesus with harassment. The church is victimizing Jesus with extortion. The church is kidnapping Jesus. The church is defrauding Jesus. The church is swindling Jesus. The church is victimizing Jesus with embezzlement. The church is committing perjury against Jesus. The church is in the business of trying to scandalize Jesus. The church is committing atrocities against Jesus. The church is desirous of killing Jesus. The church is committing assault and battery against Jesus. The church is committing robbery and burglary against Jesus. The church is committing larceny against Jesus. The church is committing felonies and misdemeanors against Jesus. The church is committing hate crimes against Jesus. The church is victimizing Jesus with discrimination. The church is committing infractions and violations against Jesus.
The church is committing attacks and rapes against Jesus. The church is committing crime of passion, war crimes, and crimes against humanity against Jesus. They're extremely anti-LGBTQI+. Well, it's never surprising that religious folks who claim to be all about love and salvation are generally not at the forefront of tolerance, especially when it comes to LGBTQI plus rights. Mega churches are particularly bad. On the one hand, the fact that NBC News reports that exactly zero of the country's largest mega churches are LGBTQI plus affirming, meaning their church will not only welcome LGBTQI plus members, but also ordain hire, marry, and baptize them, it, it, it isn't a surprise considering the evangelical traditions these megachurches are built on. Conservative Christians are among the fiercest opponents of LGBTQIA plus rights. The church glorifies heterosexism Cissexism, cisheterosexism, cisnormativity, um, heteronormativity, amenormativity, cisheteropatriarchy. The gender binary and the sexual binary. Those are some of the reasons why people are leaving church in droves. On the other hand, as noted by the Washington Post, megachurches often try to have it both ways by being deliberately vague on their policies in order to avoid bad publicity and seem more progressive than they actually are. This can lead to LGBTQI plus members believing they're fully accepted by their church when in fact they are fucking not. And many megachurches welcome LGBTQI plus parishioners only because they plan to subject them to quote-unquote conversion therapy to quote-unquote cure them of their sexual orientation. Which is shittiness in and of itself bunch of ass wipes as noted by essence what makes this infuriating as well as dark is how many mega church pastors are fired for immoral ass behavior or for being secretly gay themselves or for being secretly transgender themselves hmm In the Christian church, as they call themselves, the church has a history of protecting criminals, lawbreakers, felons, crooks, murderers, killers, rapists, perjurers, arsonists, muggers, desperados, thugs, gangsters, gang leaders, burglars, safe crackers, swindlers, clip artists, confidence men, con men, thieves, bandits, second story men, cattle 
rustlers, horse thieves, car thieves, pickpocketers, counterfeiters, foragers, smugglers, extortionists, kidnappers, gunmen, triggermen, accomplices, informers, stool pigeons, stoolies, squealers, cons, dope peddlers, and pushers. Then it says they're extremely sexist. As noted by the New York Times, the evangelical religious tradition that evolved into the modern megachurch makes no mystery about its view on gender roles. Wives are expected to submit to their husbands abusively. And gender roles are clearly marked out by the teachings of the Bible from the standpoint of male world domination. Meaning sadistic enjoyment of female subjugation. For many female parishioners in the country's megachurches, this isn't controversial. It's the spiritual life they have chosen. So the, so the churches are teaching women and girls to be the chattel slave property of people with penises and testicles. Mm, 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 mm. So basically, they reduce women to animalhood. And they want to obliterate her humanhood within her womanhood and girlhood. Ugh. Women have gained status and influence in megachurches and the wider evangelical movement, but they are still barred from being pastors or holding high leadership positions. <sighs> That's Those are other examples of assigning women and girls to thinghood, it-hood, item-hood, thingamajig-hood. But again, the first women to appear to Jesus... the resurrected Jesus were women. They were the first to appear to him as the resurrected Jesus. Who stood at the foot of the cross? Women. Who punked out on Jesus? The men. So, women disciples can't proclaim Jesus, but that's exactly what they did in the four Gospels. Mm, mm, mm. So basically, they are afraid of the servant leadership of women, and they are afraid of women being justice centered in terms of the pastorate. Mm, 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 mm. Academics James Wellman, Katie E. Cochran, and Katie J. Stockley argue that this sort of quote-unquote, soft patriarchalism leads directly 
to the long list of sex scandals plaguing mega churches as it puts pastors and other church leaders in positions where they can manipulate women placed under their care and authority. They are truly afraid of the social entrepreneurship of women. And let's be honest, you know. I've learned that when it comes to these examples of the oppression of females, I've learned that They think that female world domination of men is going to happen because of their daily victimization of women and girls. This is where it stands for me. This sexism is causing another problem for the megachurches. Difficulty finding pastors. As noted by Outreach Megachurch, megachurches have a very specific profile to look for when seeking a pastor aged 38 to 49 with experience leading a church with at least 500 congregants and married with young children. As interest in becoming a pastor wanes in the younger generations, megachurches are struggling to identify men who could take on the role, something that would be solved if women were granted equal status. So, misogynistic perfectionism is somehow godly to them. And they bullshit their congregation by dismissing women who can actually cause the church to experience radical belonging, more than just radical inclusion. So my misogyny is going to cause unnecessary waiting periods and my church will suffer because of the sin of misogyny and I would and I and I'm gonna say the crime of misogyny. Mm, mm, mm. And then it says the megachurch concept has fascist roots. As noted by The Atlantic, one of the key people who shaped the modern megachurch was Peter Drucker. Drucker was born in Austria, but became a citizen of the United States in 1943. Brit- Britannica explains that he's famous for helping create the modern concept of the corporation and the development of management theory. But he was an instrumental consultant who helped create the modern, quote-unquote, seeker-sensitive model that most megachurches follow. And his philosophy was essentially fascist. As noted by historian Barry Clark, Drucker was explicitly anti-fascist. He was a man who fled Hitler's Germany, after all. 
and he was a vocal critic and opponent of fascism in his lifetime, but Clark argues that Drucker was actually critical of the form of fascism extolled by Hitler and Mussolini that Drucker believed the failure of fascism was the fact that it ignored the spiritual aspects of existence. As noted by the orthosphere, Drucker worked with early megachurch pioneers like Rick Warren in the 1980s to translate his management theories to the megachurch model. And modern megachurches echo many aspects of fascist ideology. They are leader-focused with, with pastors giving total authority. Parishioners are expected and required to surrender much of their decision-making to the church and to conform to church policies without dissent. The idea that quote-unquote leaders must be followed, that the community must be served, is essentially is an essentially fascist concept. You know, all this makes me think the church has a history of defending crime, transgressions, misdemeanors, vices, outrages, wickedness, immorality, infringement, illegality, depravity, evil behavior, wrongdoing, misconduct, corruption, delinquency, wrongs, trespasses, malfactions, derelictions, lawlessness, domestic violence, hate crimes, discrimination, harassment, arsons, bigamy, polygamy, killing, forgery, atrocities, felony, felonies, capital crimes, offenses, white-collar crimes, scandals, blue-collar crimes, um, infractions, violations, mortal sins, homicides, voluntary manslaughters, involuntary manslaughter, simple assaults, aggravated assaults, batteries, uh, larceny, robbery, burglary, hold-up, kidnapping, swindling, fraud, defrauding, embezzlement, smuggling, extortion, bribery, mugging, date rape, statutory rapes, attacks, sexual molestation, breach of promise, malicious mischief, breach of the peace, libel, perjury, conspiracy, counterfeiting, inciting to revolt, sedition, mayhem, crime of passion, war crime, crime against humanity, corruption, evil, murder, rape, sin, theft, and treason. say again scientific and historical errors in the bible bible errors and mistakes overview learnreligions.com by austin klein austin klein updated on february 8 2019 the bible is filled with errors and mistakes other ancient texts also have errors and mistakes but this isn't a problem because people don't expect the authors of those texts to be perfect the Bible, in contrast, is claimed by many believers to be infallible, inerrant, and perfect. Many base their entire religious ideology around the presumption that the Bible is free from errors or mistakes, so demonstrating the presence of errors is key to rebutting their religious claims. Um, common sense says that no one can describe God perfectly as imperfect human beings. So, the Bible being faultless is is irrationality to a high degree. Are there errors and mistakes in the Bible? Of course there are errors and mistakes in the Bible. The only people who deny the presence of errors and mistakes are those with a strong 
ideological commitment to a belief that the Bible is somehow infallible and errant or perfect. We can find errors and mistakes everywhere we look in the Bible because it's a collection of texts written centuries and millennia ago. Not all of their writers agreed and they were all ignorant of things humans have learned since then. So, even believers, a lot of believers understand you can be divinely inspired. That doesn't mean you do God's will perfectly. Something can be divinely breathed. That doesn't mean that the believer dotted every I and crossed every T in terms of doing the will and the way of God. Even a lot of believers will admit to that. Uh, Scientific errors in the Bible. Scientific errors, statements that conflict with facts about reality we have learned through scientific investigation can be found throughout the Bible because the biblical texts are written at the time when human knowledge about our world was quite limited. We can't blame ancient writers for knowing less than we do now, but we can blame people alive now for preferring the errors of ancient writers over the reliable knowledge developed today. So in other words, that adds to the science and religion clashing when it comes to each other. Um, Religion is not known for being consistently peer-reviewed, but science is. Science, like language, grows and new terms and new meanings and new definitions have to be applied year by year. Science and language have that in common. Religion, sadly and tragically, doesn't have those things shared in common with science and language. Then it says historical errors in the Bible. Historical errors are mistakes in the historical record. Claims about events happening or which happened but which never did and claims about events that would happen in the future but which never transpired. One might expect an ancient text to have an accurate record of ancient events, but historians, as we know, have not always been completely honest with their representation of events. In the past, records were written with an ideological agenda behind them, not for the sake of pure actual accuracy. Historical mistakes and errors are only to be expected. I mean, there's no such thing as human perfection when it comes to science, when it comes to mathematics, when it comes to inventions, when it comes to history, when it comes to geography, when it comes to business, when it comes to athletics, when it comes to each and every topic of life, including law and politics. Do Bible errors and mistakes matter? Under under other circumstance, the presence of scientific and historical errors would be a big deal in the ancient texts. They exist in all ancient texts, including religious scriptures, and no one invests a lot of time trying to point them out. Except scientists. Except scholars. Except self-taught people. The Bible is different, though, because so many people base their lives around the proposition that it, it is actually free from errors, infallible and perfect. If so many Christian Jews weren't trying to force civil society and civil laws to conform to their imperfect Bible, pointing out its errors and mistakes wouldn't be so fucking necessary. Damn it. (laughs)
Now, um, let's, because people, this is May 18, 2012. The problem of the Bible, inaccuracies, contradictions, fallacies, scientific issues, and more. You know what? This is going to be my last religion episode. Um, my next episode will be about sex organized crime, okay? This will be my last religion episode. Okay, cool. Because I don't want to rush anything. I have to say, the Bible is a poorly compiled piece of work if you're religious, and I'm sure I have your attention from that alone. A lot of people claim the Bible is perfect without error. Most of these people have never actually read the Bible fully, never researched the Bible fully, other than cherry-picking the few verses they think are so nice that makes them look good, but they don't care about Jesus looking good. If you find the following offensive, then good. It's time people actually knew what their Bible contained. The problem with the Bible how the Bible is literally full of errors in nearly every way possible. The following has been extracted from a document called the Dossier of Reason created by a former pastor. This is docs.google.com slash document. It says, which Bible? A, over 450 English versions of the Bible. All are translated using different methods and from entirely different manuscripts. C, thousands of manuscripts disagreeing with each other widely in what verses and even books they contain how those verses read. D, different translations teach entirely different things in places, some often leaving out entire chapters and verses or containing footnotes warning of possible error due to uncertainty about the reliability of the numerous manuscripts. Availability. Current estimates that 2,251 languages representing 193 million people lack a Bible translation. Then you have historical and geographical errors in the Bible. River Gihon could not possibly flow from Mesopotamia and encompass Ethiopia. Genesis chapter 2 verse 13. The name Babel does not come from the Hebrew word Baal or confused, but from the Babylonian Babili or gate of God, which is a translation of the original Sumerian name Kadamura. Genesis chapter 11 verse 9. Ur was not a Chaldean city until 1,000 years after Abraham. Genesis chapter 11, verse 28. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. Abraham pursued enemies to Dan. Genesis chapter 14, verse 14. That name was not used geographically until after the conquest. Judges chapter 18, verse 29. Genesis chapter 36, verse 31. Telling of Jacob and Esau lists as kings of Edom before they are before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. This must have been written hundreds of years later after Israel had kings. Joseph tells Pharaoh he comes to the land of the Hebrews. Genesis chapter 40 verse 15. There was no such land until after the conquest under Joshua. The Egyptian princess names the baby she finds Moses because she drew him out of the water, Heb Meshethi. Heb Meshethi. Why would she make a pun in Hebrew? Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. No Egyptian record exists mentioning Moses or his devastation of Egypt. 
Moses refers to Palestine, Exodus chapter 15, verse 14. No such name was in use then. Law of Moses and the statutes of God and his laws, Exodus chapter 18, verse 26. But it closely mirrors the code of Hammurabi, which was penned 1800 BC, hundreds of years before Moses. Priests are mentioned at Exodus chapter 19, verses 22 through 24, but they are not provided for until Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Moses mentions Rabbath, where Og's bedstead is located, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Moses could not have any knowledge of Rabbath, which was not captured by the Hebrews until David's time, 500 years later, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 26. Jericho and I, Joshua chapter 8, were both ancient ruins at the time of the conquest of Canaan, according to archaeologists. Jericho's walls were destroyed centuries before Joshua. Kings are referred to at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17 through 19, before Israel had kings. The wilderness is viewed as history at Numbers chapter 15, verse 32, showing that Numbers was written later. The Sabbath law was unknown when the man gathered sticks at Numbers chapter 15, verse 32 through 34. Book of Joshua refers to Book of Jashar in the past, mentioned at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. Therefore, Joshua must be post-David. Captivity is mentioned at Judges chapter 18, verse 30, making it post-exile. David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 54. See how I can correct my error? It's actually 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 54. Let me repeat that again because I can self-correct unlike the Bible. David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 54. But Jerusalem was not captured until seven years after David became king. 2 Samuel chapter 5. David paid 600 shekels of gold for the threshing floor. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verses 22 through 25. But shekels of gold were not yet used in business transactions. This is the only use of the term in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 18 verse 6 mentions the temple thus cannot be by David. Defeat of Sennacherib did not happen at Jerusalem, but at Pelusium near Egypt, and Jews were not involved, contrary to 2 Kings chapter 19. Nineveh was so large it took three days to cross, example about 60 miles. Jonah chapter 3 verses 3 through 4. Yet it had only 120,000 inhabitants, making a population density density of, of about 42 people per square mile for a city. One more time, I'm going to self-correct again. Nineveh was so large it took three days to cross, example, about 60 miles, Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, yet it had only 120,000 inhabitants, making a population density of about 42 people per square mile for a city. You notice my humbleness? Daniel's account of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is historically inaccurate. Nebuchadnezzar was never mad. Belshazzar, whom he says was king, was never king, but only regent. Belshazzar was not the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but of 
Nabonidus. Babylon was not conquered by Darius the Medi, but by Cyrus the Great in 539 BC, Daniel chapter 5, verse 31. Darius the Mede is unknown to history. Chronology of the empires of the Medes and Persians is historically inaccurate in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17, Isaiah chapter 21, verse 2, Jeremiah chapter 5. Sorry, self-correction, Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 11 and 28. When I make an audio error, which I have, I can actually tell you that I'm wrong. Are you detecting my gratitude? Esther and all the characters in the book of Esther except Ahasuerus equals Xerxes is unknown to history, even though it claims that its events are written in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Esther chapter 10 verse 2. See, when I misspeak, I quickly correct it. Esther chapter 10, verse 2. The book of Esther is not quoted by any pre-Christian writer, nor mentioned in the New Testament, nor quoted by early Christian fathers. Mordecai became prime minister to Circes, Ahasuerus, who reigned 485 through 465 BC, but Mordecai had come to Babylon in 596 BC with Jehoiachin, Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. The office of high priest of Mark chapter 2, verse 26, did not exist in David's day. None of the gospels are mentioned by early Christians. Example, Paul. Pope Clement I, 97 AD, Justin Martyr, 140 AD. The first mention of any gospel is by Arrhenius, 185 AD. There is no mountain from which one can see all the kingdoms of the world, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, Luke chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus as a historical figure is not mentioned by any contemporary non-Christian writers. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, Jesus was born in the reign of Herod, who died 4 BC. Luke chapter 2, verse 2 says he was born during Quirinius' governorship of Syria, which began 6 AD. Thieves were never punished by crucifixion, Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 and 44. No crucifixion would have been performed on the eve of Passover. There is no contemporary historical confirmation of darkness covering the earth at the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27 verse 35, Luke chapter 23 verse 44. There is no contemporary historical confirmation. Let me slow down. See? True self-loving people. We can correct ourselves in the midst of an error. We don't have to fully finish the error. Rewind. There is no contemporary historical confirmation of the slaughter of the innocents by Herod. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Josephus, whose history contains much criticism of Herod, does not mention it. There is no contemporary historical confirmation 
again, last time I'll correct myself in the error. There is no contemporary historical confirmation of the grave's opening and the dead appearing to many at the crucifixion, according to Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 through 53. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus quotes the Septuagint while arguing with the Pharisees in a portion of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. That reads drastically different from the Hebrew text. A Palestinian reading from a Greek text that contradicts the Hebrew to Orthodox Jews is unusual to say the least. In Mark chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus tells Palestinian listeners that a wife who puts away her husband commits adultery. This would have been meaningless to Palestinian listeners where only men could divorce. In Mark chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus casts out devils and forces them into 2,000 swine who then run down into the sea and are drowned. This is said to have occurred in Garrisons, 31 miles from the sea. In Matthew, which was written later, this is changed to Gadara, which is much more feasible. The Tigris and Euphrates are reported in Genesis before and after the flood, apparently unaffected by the massive destruction. The use of the Tigris and Euphrates by Egyptian civilization Pre and post flood. Okay, these are the Tigris and Euphrates by Egyptian civilization are pre and post flood. Okay. Scientific inaccuracy of the Bible. Earth is about 6,000 years old as calculated from the genealogies in Genesis. In Genesis and Luke chapter 3, see the problem of a young earth later in the outline. <sighs> wow, the scientific inaccuracy of the Bible gets worse. Birds are created before land animals, Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 and 24. Fossil record shows exact opposite. Wow. The Earth is about billions of years old. For clarity, Earth has four corners and floats on water. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, Psalm chapter 24, verse 2, Psalm chapter 136, verse 6, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. I've seen Earth in the universe in terms of photography and that is a lie earth is a circular disc as h at 40 verse 22 no earth is round it's not a disc it's a planet um last time i checked the earth is not a compact disc it's not a cd then it says, Earth is flat. These verses were used for centuries by the church to prove this. Psalm chapter 93, verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 13, Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. The earth is not flat. 
The earth is green, colored, blue colored, and shaped like a bowling pin without the holes in it. <sighs> earth does not move. Psalm chapter 93, verse 1. Psalm chapter 96, verse 10. Psalm chapter 104, verse 5. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 30. Clearly the earth moves. Revolving around. Okay. Um, death or illness is caused by sin. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 17. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 16. 21, 25, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 21, and 27, James chapter 1, verse 15. Uh. So, they're basically saying that the Holocaust is the fault of the Jews because the Jews sinned. So they would apply anti-Semitism to the biblical concept called divine transgression. Mm, mm, mm. God, quote-unquote himself, believes that a house or clothes can have leprosy and he, de- and he details the remedy according to the book of chapter 13 and 14. That the Bible writers are saying that God is not all-knowing after all. And it says seed must quote unquote die before it grows. John chapter 12, verse 24, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 36. No, the seed needs to be watered and planted in fertile soil so it grows. If it dies, then we don't have vegetation. Snakes eat dust. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25. I've seen snakes eat, and dust is not something that is tasty to them. Every beast shall fear man. Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. No, I've seen animal shows, and I've seen beasts chew humans. I've seen beasts get into fights with humans. I've seen beasts give harsh stares to humans. Then it says the ostrich abandons her eggs. Job chapter 9 verse 13 through 16. No, no, no. I've seen animal shows. I've seen the total opposite. I've seen ostrich who... treat their eggs no different than a mother bird treats the nest when it comes to her kids. Then it says a river divides into four rivers and they flow in different directions. Genesis chapter 2 verse 10. No, that's not what I saw on nature shows. I seen a, a river fall like its own waterfall and it has a body of water. I've seen it go in a consistent direction. In terms of the water stream, the water flow, it 
it goes in a consistent direction, wherever it goes. There is no rainbow for Noah's time in chapter 9, verse 11 and 17. That's not true. I've done research. Rainbows were around before then. Rainbows are as old as the beginning of time, based upon what I research. I do credible research. Thunder is God's voice, Psalm chapter 77, verse 18. If that were true, everybody would have been dead already. And 2023 would have never happened. Because everybody would have been thunderstormed every time God talked. So, apparently God has deadly vocal range. Mm. Then it says, earthquakes are caused by God's anger. Job chapter 9, verse 5. Psalm chapter 18, verse 7. Uh, Psalm chapter 77, verse 18. Psalm uh, chapter 97, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, um, Nahum chapter 1, verse 5, or by his voice. Hebrew chapter 12, verse 26, or by Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16. If that were the case... We wouldn't have all the centuries that we would have we already have had. Oh man. There's just so many. return to that, but I want to f- make sure I do this article. This is grunge.com. Televangelists who are anything but holy. By Tom Mesjord. Updated February 21st, 2023, 12.44 a.m. East Coast time. Televangelism. What is there to say about it that hasn't already been said in countless documentaries, exposés, and in dis. Position and depositions. In theory, it's a beautiful way to spread a message of faith to the masses. In practice, seems to end disproportionately in hand-tailored suits that cost as much as a down payment on a mortgage, and in more than a few cases, prison. What's the deal? It's true. If you're looking for a celebrity figure that's going to hit with a scandal, you do all right perusing the ranks of televangelists. Some people call it dumb luck. I call it being fucked up. The more skeptical would probably point out how easy it is to take advantage of a position of power. If you're one of the people on this list, you're almost definitely going to say the devil made you do it. So, blaming the devil means evading accountability and responsibility for all their bullshit. Or they will twist scripture by saying, God is always working in mysterious ways. Mm. 
So blame God too when it comes to all of their bullshit. Again, mm. what did he make you do? Let's take a look and find out. Moves like swagger. Jimmy Swagger is notable for a number of reasons, but none so important as the fact that his plastic face face facade is the first thing that pops up if you Google image search televangelist crying in quotations. This story goes like this. Back in the 1970s, 1980s, Swagger was one of the most influential evangelical preachers in America. He's producing shows nearly every day and being broadcast on hundreds of channels across the world. When he talked, the people in his community listened. When he exposed fellow TV preacher Marvin Gorman for having extramarital affairs, that guy wound up out of a job. Unfortunately for Swagger, hell hath no fear like a minor television celebrity scorn, and Gorman had Swagger followed and photographed during a rendezvous with a local prostitute, we say sex worker today. What followed was a house of cards worthy circle of blackmail that saw Gorman reinstated and Swagger taken off the air for a spell. Soon afterward, he gave the speech where he cried a lot and asked for forgiveness. It was a touching moment of humility from atop a pillar normally reserved for moral superiority. Truly, we're all human. Even the best among us must strive to be better. Anyway, then he did it again three years later and lost everything. And by quote-unquote lost everything, we mean he's now back on TV and has his own network again. What does that mean? The church teaches cheap mercy, cheap grace, cheap forgiveness, cheap compassion, cheap repentance, and cheap redemption. Haggard the Horrible. Ted Haggard was the chiclet tooth faced of evangelism for three years as the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Life was a hoot and a holler for Haggard. He had everything. I was hooting, hooting and hollering. A loving wife, five adoring children, regular crystal meth-fueled hookups with a male prostitute named Mike Jones. Unfortunately for the Reverend, the last part brought everything tumbling down. Jones figured out who Ted was during his non-meth and solicitation hours and blabbed to the press. Hedgard's responses to the accusations varied over the next few months, running the gamut from, I don't know who that guy is, lying, to, I bought meth from that guy, but I threw it away, lying again, to eventually, yeah, did all that stuff, telling the truth way too late. Hedgard wound up disgraced and ejected from his church. He was posed for a comeback in 2009 when HBO produced a documentary on his return to the righteous path. But wouldn't you know it, more allegations of the abuse of variety popped the hell up. Oh, and in 2012, he was on Celebrity Wife Swap. He switched lady friends with Gary Busy, so that's quote-unquote fun. I had to take a breather because in church it's okay not to be rehabilitated and in church it's okay not to be reformed. So the church Christianizes self-destructive behavior. The church 
churchifies self-abuse. The church spiritualizes community-destructive behavior. The church sanctifies community harm and the church is a fan of community abuse. There's a self-abuse cult in the church. Jesse Duplantis wants a plane. You know how it is. Every year you take the kids shopping for new shoes. A month later, they've outgrown the damn things. And you have to ask your parishioners for $54 million to buy new ones. Well, Jesse Duplantis feels your pain. Ha 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 ha. The same thing happened to him, but with a private jet instead of new kicks. In May 2018, the famed television minister put on a call to action. His old-ass jet, not to be confused with his other two old-ass jets, was wearing a little thin at the seams and he just knew his followers would help him. Apparently, he's a humble-ass servant of Jesus. You remember Jesus. He's the guy that eschewed material wealth and said it was easier to thread a needle with a whole camel than it was for a rich-ass dude to get in heaven. He only needed a small tithing of millions and millions of dollars to buy a sweet-ass new Falcon, seven times passenger jet. According to Duplantis, God personally told him that he wants him flying in that particular plane, presumably because the good Lord would never expect his followers to fly southwest. No, for real, why doesn't God want televangelists flying business class? In a broadcast from 2015, Duplantis' fellow preacher Kenneth Copeland said it was because regular airliners are filled with people who would constantly be asking them to pray. Yeah, praying for people would be a bummer. I noticed that in church... There's a monkey see monkey do culture. In church, you accept without reflection. In church, people are taught to be impulsive and compulsive. In church, people are taught. to be stupid sheep who defend the stupidity of their stupid shepherds. And in church, people are taught to be slaves to the pulpit. The pulpit is taught to be slaves to the congregation. The choir loft is slave to the pulpits and the congregation. The congregation, the pulpit, meaning the pews, 
are slaves to the congregation, slaves to the choir law part of the congregation, and all three, the pulpit, the pews, and the choir laws, are slaves to church leadership who are slaves to other ministries. They're slaves to tithes and offerings, and they're slaves to love offerings. Okay, remember that Alamos, it all started in 1969 with a small ministry an hour outside Hollywood run by a married couple, Tony and Susan Alamo. Alamo, but who cares? Their methods were questionable and their message was a horror show, but otherwise it was an unspectacular enterprise. Cut to the mid-1970s, Susan and Tony are broadcasting their gospel and living in a 14,000 square foot mansion in Arkansas on a compound staffed by their fathers who are paid $5 a week and get food when they're good. When Susan died in 1982, Tony had her body on display for six months with his congregants performing a constant vigil over the corpse so it would come back to life. Things get creepier the more you read about the Alamos. The ministry fell pretty clearly under the umbrella of that's absolutely a cult when it was discovered that they had followers working in a sweatshop producing high-end denim jackets that were sold for hundreds of dollars. The government started taking action in the early 90s, and Tony found himself on the wrong side of the law. He'd been operating his business as tax-free nonprofits, which the IRS call, called bullshit on pretty fucking hard. Oh, also, he stole his wife's body from the compound after it was shut the hell down. The kicker was his conviction on 10 counts of transporting girls as young as eight across state lines for the obvious evil reason a shining quote cons- consent is puberty yeah he died in jail <sighs> sex trafficking and human trafficking have a lot of pulpiteers and preachers and religious leaders in it and labor laws especially child labor laws and labor rights and workers rights are frowned upon by the far right So, I'm seeing all of the seven deadly sins being utilized in this story, which are pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. But I'll add the extra two, vainglory. Also known as vanity and ascetia. Robert Tilton's ministry is actual trash. Fans of Robert Tilton know him as the host of Success in Life. Early frequenters of YouTube know him as the farting preacher. Pretty much everyone else knows him as a giant fraud. Tilton's message has been clear from the start. Poverty is a result of sin and also please send money. His ministry became so popular that he attracted between 8,000 and 10,000 worshippers to his megachurch every week. 
and this broadcast is brought in scores of letters with personal requests for prayer and naturally donations. During an undercover investigation, ABC discovered that prayer letters sent to Robert Tilton's television ministry were sent straight to the bank where their donations were marked and their prayers were thrown in the dumpster. Tilton's rebuttal, Nuh-uh, no, I didn't do that. You did do that, you piece of shit. He said he prayed so hard over the letters that the ink leaked into his bloodstream. And by the way, that's why he needed plastic surgery. Paid for by aforementioned donations. I noticed that the church refuses to utilize mental health examinations as a part of its Christian public figure criteria. I am just thoughtful of the fact that Christianity attracts monsters, mammoths, leviathans, behemoths, monstrosities, monsters. Christianity attracts grotesque creatures because a lot of these televangelists look like monsters. Their appearance frightens and they have powers of destruction which threaten the human world's social moral order. They, they look deformed. They look like mutants. And they are low down, which makes them the lowest class. Hargis, the also horrible. Billy James Hargis was the grandpappy of many televangelist trends. Grandpappy means grandfather. Like mail fraud and swearing that the broadcast would go off the air if people didn't send money as soon as possible ASAP. His church, the Church of the Christian Crusades, spread a staunchly conservative interpretation of Christianity. God hated communists, he said, presumably explaining why Jesus accepted Venmo for all those loaves and fishes. Hargis even went so far as to write a speech for Joseph McCarthy, the famous communist witch hunter. It wouldn't be his political views that would bring him down, not his anti-labor union manifestos or the fact that he'd light up a room with a smile when he brought up segregation or his connection to a series of bombings in the 1960s. He was made of stuff too stern for something as trifling as complete lack of moral fiber to knock him out of the fucking box. Yet Billy James Harkis was steadfast. Billy James Harkis was resolute. Billy James Harkis ran into some trouble when two members of his congregation got married in surprise revealed that neither of them were virgins on account of Billy James Hargis. I mean, this guy embodies insanity, extreme foolishness or irrationality, Folly, foolhardiness, idiocy, stupidity, and imbecility, as well as madness, lunacy, instability, 
and dementedness. Which means behaving, behaving wildly and irrationally in a kind of anger, distress, or excitement. That's so him. The late Marcus Lamb gets sheepish. He, did, he refused to take the vaccine as the anti-vaxxer that he was. And he tried alternatives to the vaccine. It didn't work. And it sped up his earthly demise. If you've ever been at a cheap hotel flipping through channels in the middle of the night, you'd, you'd probably saw Marcus Lamb's work. He was the founder of the Daystar Television Network, the second largest Christian TV network on earth. Lamb's story is a familiar one. He found the church at a young age and started preaching as a teenager. Um... His whole life was all about spreading the news. It turns out that some news just gets spread faster when you're being blackmailed for $7.5 million. During a stunning sermon in 2010, Lamb admitted to, have, to having had an affair a few years earlier. According to him, three women who had previously worked for him had threatened to go public with information if they weren't paid $7.5 million. Taking the high ground, anything is high ground once you get low enough. Lamb repented, in quotations, asking his congregation for forgiveness, in quotations, and actually went on Dr. Phil, in quotations. His wife stuck with him even after he was sued for allegedly going all, quote-unquote, bad touch on employees during mandated, quote-unquote, quiet time. I noticed that he was filled with hysteria, mania, psychosis, mental illness, mental disorder, mental derangement, and unsoundness of mind. Peter Popoff will sell you salvation. If you learn one thing today, let it be this. America is the land of second chances and and televangelism is the seedy island territory just offshore where we house third, fourth, and fifth chances. The personification of this phenomenon might well be Peter Popoff. With his grinning California charm, charismatic preaching medicine, Mother Goosian, all a narrative name, Popoff was the man to see in the 1980s for revival services and quick as a bunny faith healing. Attendees of, his, attendees of his sermons were amazed when he called out strangers by name, knowing exactly what afflicted them through the divine providence of God. In a roundabout way, it was true. If God created man and man created the small two-way radios that Popoff and his assistant used to have secretly communicate while Popoff was performing, then hallelujah, prestigious debunker James Randi exposed the trick on national television and Popoff was never heard from again. Sorry, that was a typo. He kept going and now does infomercials selling his patented miracle manna, a guaranteed cure for, according to Popoff, basically everything. So... This guy is, that guy is of insaneness, crazedness, and derelition, including loss of reason.
I wouldn't be surprised if he has delirium, which is a temporal, a temporary mental state characterized by confusion, anxiety, incoherent speech, and hallucinations. Um, Mike Wark ain't got the devil in him. I'm sorry, is it Mike Wark K? Mike Wark ain't got the devil in him. Everybody's known that one dude that can't stop himself from one-upping. You just got a dog. He just got a bald eagle. You've been to Europe. He's an archduke, and his armies march on Luxembourg this every night. To most people, it's exhausting. Defense of Mike Wark, it's Sunday morning. Wark was sort of a big-ass deal back in the day. Though he didn't focus on TV, he lived the good-ass life as a minister and Christian comedian, traveling the world, spreading his message that the devil is coming for your ass, and you better be ready to fight him. How did he know? Because he totally used to be a Satanist. No, not just a Satanist, a Satanic preacher with a whole-ass cult. Like 1,500 people followed him. They made blood sacrifices. He absolutely claimed all of that shit. Among his other supposed accomplishments, his doctor in philosophy has two bachelor's degrees and is somewhere between two and five wounds he accumulated in Vietnam. Was any of it true? Hell no. Negative, Captain. What makes Warren's case all the more fascinating is that he was actually outed as a fraud by a Christian publication, Cornerstone Magazine, in Exposed in 1991. The resulting backlash was split. Some were angered at Warren for his deception. Others were upset at the magazine for calling out a man who's bringing the word of God to the people. It's so hard to focus your anger, your pissed offness sometimes. Yes. You truthful bastards. <laughs> oh, what are my thoughts on that? Warwick and his fans are despicable. Enough said. Jim Baker at it again. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously noted that there are no second acts in American lives. There's no way of knowing if this actually happened, but it just feels right to imagine that Jim Baker responded by saying, Hold my miracle core. Quite quick recap, 1973, Jim and his then-wife Tammy Baker co-founded the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Home their program, the PTL Club, small screen success led to high-minded ambitions, and the Bakerson began construction of Heritage USA, a Christian theme park with water slides, a 500-room hotel, and the staple of all amusement parks, tax exemption. The $1.3 million in church funds that an IRS investigation found redirected to the Bakers' personal accounts couldn't take Jim down. But CNN reports the alleged hush money payment of $279,000 to cover up the rape of his secretary certainly pushed the quote-unquote pause button on a success story. In 1989, Baker was convicted on 29 counts, including mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy, and sentenced to 45 years in prison. A sentence sentence reduction later, Baker was pro-1994. It wasn't long before his cherubic face was once again warmed by studio lighting and the liberal application of pancake makeup. 
His latest puckish misadventure, getting sued by the state of Missouri for selling a fake coronavirus cure. Hmm. So Jim Baker is dishonorable, dishonest, nefarious, and indictable. Morally wrong and condemnable. Paula White and wrong. Donald Trump's fake me out presidency will be with any luck the most polarizing point in American history that will live to experience. The decisions that have been made and the tweets that have been tweeted have led to deeply divided public opinion celebrity impersonations being hammered so far into the ground that they could be used to secure a subterranean mole people trans transcontinental railroad one star player has been paula white fake me out president trump's spiritual advisor among other things she's a hard and fast believer in this prosperity gospel and also claims that all world leaders are put in power by divine grace and that to disagree with them is to disagree with the will of god shining a whole new light on the place of pharaohs in society there's plenty of behavior to throw stones at here, but the Bible takes a pretty firm stance on that. Interestingly, it also states in Matthew that Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Paula White, as quoted by Newsweek, doesn't seem to agree with that saying, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan awkward. Oh, so Jesus is Satan to her. And Satan is Jesus to her. Next, Jerry Falwell couldn't take a joke. As reported by UPI, when Jim Baker bounced out of PTL in 1987, he became concerned that his ministry was about to be the subject of a hostile takeover by Jimmy Swaggart, who initiated the investigation into the Baker clan. To avoid Swaggart's potential power grab, he handed Jerry Falwell seeing the keys to the kingdom. Televangelism feels a lot like Game of Thrones once you read enough about it. Falwell certainly had the resume to back up the job. In the previous decade, he founded the Moral Majority Majority Pact shortly after an all-white Christian academy that he founded was threatened with losing its tax-exempt status due to new legislation regarding segregated schools. There's a lot of ground to cover with Jerry Falwell. He once sued Hustler for $45 million because they ran a parody piece making fun of him and took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. He lost. He also stated that, an, he also stated that a gay-friendly church was a satanic cult and that its inevitable annihilation would cause a celebration in heaven. Then there was the time that he said the September 11th attacks happened because God was angry at America's acceptance of, among others, the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians, he would say transgenders now, who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle. He referred to the attacks as what we deserve. He was also the guy who got really upset about the purple Teletubby back in the 1990s. He had a lot of feelings. So, when I think of him, I think of the words shit, nonsense, balderdash, gibberish, claptrap, blarney, blather, blather, moonshine, gobbledygook, 
to me, he's excrement, he's odor, he's dung, he's manure, he's scat, he's excreta, he's stools, he's a scoundrel, a villain, a rogue, a rascal, a brute, an animal, and a weasel. He's something worthless, garbage, nonsense. He's a contemptible and worthless person, and he is feces. Ernest Angley, God heals man's snips. Ernest Angley has been having a rough go of things lately. A Christian Post piece from late 2019 outlined some of his current financial struggles. His Boeing 747 has been on blocks for two years since the six-figure repairs that it needs are currently out of Angley's reach, financially speaking. A lot of that has to do with the minister's legal troubles and fall from public grace. The accusations are numerous and diverse. According to Forbes, one man who began working for Angley at 18 claims that he would regularly be called to the preacher's house for quote-unquote special anointings involving personal massages and a marked lack of clothing. Angley has previously been accused of operating a cult where followers are taught that enough prayer can heal HIV and childless men are encouraged to have vasectomies. And Angley, who preaches vehemently against the so-called sin of homosexuality, is himself a gay man who personally examines the genitals of the male parishioners before and after their surgeries. So, basically, he's a jackass. He's a pile of shit. Paul and Jan Crouch turned on their family. Paul and Jen Crouch got to the television game during its early days, buying up television stations across the country and forming the Trinity Broadcasting Network, best known as the only television station that the TV and Motel 6 room seems capable of playing. As reported by the Los Angeles Times more than 40 years later, their media empire has an estimated value of $750 million. It's also extra strength shady. According to allegations made by Jan and Paul's granddaughter, Brittany Copper. Brittany Coper. According to her, the network serves as a personal bank account for the Crouch family, who aren't above zany shenanigans like having their chauffeurs ordained to avoid having to pay taxes on their salaries. Speaking to the New York Times after being fired from the company, Coper said that her job as finance director was to find ways to label extravagant personnel spending as ministry expenses. In 2012, another of the Crouch's granddaughters sued the couple, claimed that she had been sexually assaulted by a TBN employee when she was 13 and that Jan had turned a blind eye and blamed the child for the attack. Basically, TBN is ran by shit stains. And TBN is an antichrist 
because they have Trump supporting program hosts on their network. In all actuality, I'm going to read to you the rest of the inaccuracies, contradictions, fallacies, scientific issues, and more, which makes up the big problem of the Bible. I'm just reading it to you. And the way I read it, you can tell I strongly disagree with what I'm reading. It says, Earthquakes can occur in heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. Rainwater does not return to the sky, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. Blood is, quote unquote, life, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23. Breath is, quote unquote, life, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Moon will turn to blood, Acts chapter 2, verse 20. The moon has a light of its own, according to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, the stars can be made to fall. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Mark chapter 13, verse 25. The bat is a bird. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 13 and 19. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 11 and 18. The whale is a fish, going to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Whales were created before insects, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24, 21 through 24. Jonah is able to survive three days and nights in the belly of the fish without oxygen and without being digested. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 17. Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. They, the hare choose to cut according to the book of chapter 11 verses 5 through 6. Some fowl and insects have four legs according to the book of chapter 11 verse 20 through 23. Levi existed as a person in the loins of his great-grandfather. Hebrew chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Cattle will produce striped offspring if they see striped poles when breeding. Just chapter 30, verse 37 through 41. Like I said, I'm reading that inflection of voice the whole time. I'm reading fast because all this bullshit is exhausting. Bees will build a hive in a dead carcass. Judges chapter 14, verse 8. Salt can lose its saltiness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Luke chapter 14, verse 34. Slugs slash snails melt as they move. According to Psalm chapter 58, verse 8. So, Noah's flood. Why the ordered fossil layering? of plant and animals. The common answer is that simpler life forms cannot flee the flood water and so are on the bottom. How did plants move away from the flood to end up with fossilized forests on top of other fossilized forests? Why do we not find one lame human that couldn't flee? Why didn't dinosaurs make to the hills? My other question is, why does the church refuse to acknowledge the historicity and history of dinosaurs? And how come the Bible does not make direct reference to dinosaurs? 
I don't see that in the book of Genesis, especially the seven day creationism theory, which has been widely debunked by scientists and scholars. Where did all the water come from? Or where did it go? Conservative estimates need about three times the amount of water in the entire Earth. It's polar captions atmosphere to cover the mountain like the mountains like the Bible says. The ancient Egyptians were already keeping records for hundreds of years before the flood and did not seem to notice that their entire civilization was wiped out or that a flood occurred at all. The Joyzer Step Pyramid and the Great Pyramid of Cheops were both built hundreds of years before the flood with no evidence of water damage. If the flood created fossils in two of every kind were on the ark, then that means that we have to have two of each quote-unquote kind of fossil we have ever found. What about the special diets and environmental needs of some of these animals on the ark? How did they have the manpower to feed these animals? How did the food to keep these animals alive stay fresh? How did the ark stay afloat? The longest wooden ships today are around 350 feet and are banded with iron clasps and must be continuously pumped due to leaking in wood. The ark was 450 feet long. Why are the vast majority of fossils found in river beds and other aquatic areas if the whole earth, including dry land, was covered in water? Distribution of animals. If Noah's ark landed in Turkey, why would marsupials go back to Australia where we find the majority of marsupial fossils that were disposited by the flood? But that were deposited by the flood. Why didn't marsupial disperse out from Turkey? Contradictions and eternal errors in the Bible. Uh, Gen chap- Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. God created lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from night. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. God had already made this division earlier. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 through 12, Genesis and verses 26 to 27. Trees were created before man was created. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. Man was created before trees were created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. Um, Genesis, uh, verses 26 to 27. Birds were created before man was created. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 19. Man was created before birds were created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 to 27. Animals were created before man was created. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, 19. Man was created before animals were created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Man and woman were created at the same time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 21 through 22. Man was created first, woman sometime later. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, Genesis chapter 22, verses 14 through 16, and Genesis chapter 26, verse 25. God was already known as the Lord, Java or Jehovah, much earlier than the time of Moses. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 through 3. God was first known as the Lord, Java or Jehovah, at the time of the Egyptian bondage during the life of Moses. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. There is no plant or shrub on the earth after God created it before the fall because there was no one to work the ground. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. The land produced plants, trees, and fruit on its own without a worker. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. Having to work the ground for food was a punishment for the fall. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. It is wrong to be able to tell good from evil. Um... And then it says, I think it's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 for 14. It's immature to be unable to tell good from evil. I'll make sure that that's absolutely the case. Yep, it is. Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 19 to 27. I think it's Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. Um, God is a vengeful God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. God is a warrior. Um, God is a consuming fire. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. God is a jealous God. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 7 and 9. Numbers chapter 31, verse 17 and 18. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 to 17. Um, Judges chapter 14, verse 19. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 5 to 7. And Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. The Spirit of God is sometimes murder and killing. Numbers chapter 25, verse 3 through 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Psalm chapter 78, verse 49. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 4. Uh, Jeremiah chapter, you know chapter 32 verse 30 to 31 uh zachariah i think chapter i don't know what is zp i'm still learning uh bible chapter initials um zephaniah chapter 2 verse 2 god is angry anger is sometimes fierce um second corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 and 14, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 23 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, there were Nephilim, giants before the flood. Genesis chapter 7, verse 21, all creatures other than Noah and his clan were annihilated by the flood. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, there were Nephilim after the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, Numbers chapter 14, verse 20, First uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 35, Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 16, God does change his mind. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 through 20, First Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, Jeremiah, um, Okay, what is J-A? Again, these Bible chapter initials. Ugh.
Okay, James chapter 1, verse 17. God does not change his mind. Genesis chapter 7, verse 24. The flood lasts 150 days. Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, 40 days. Genesis chapter 8, verse 5, 10 months. So, I'll just read the rest because I know the chapters take a lot of time. So, I'll just go for it. So, in the Bible it says, it makes it clear, God sows discord. God hates anyone who sows discord. At Babel, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Paul says that God is not the author of confusion. A park shat, our fact set was the father of Shelah. Canaan was the father of Shelah. A park shat was the grandfather of Shelah. Terah was seven years old when his son Abraham was born. Terah was 205 years old when he died, making Abraham 135 at the time. Abraham was 75 when he left Haran. This is after Terah died. Thus, Terah could have been no more than 145 when he died, or Abraham was only 75 years old after he had lived 135 years. If you want to know the rest of the books of the Bible about this, I will provide the whole link to this episode so you can see it for yourself so you won't miss anything. I'm just getting to the point. God is seen. God is not seen. No one can see God's face and live. No one has ever seen him. There are many languages for the Tower of Babel. There's only one language for the Tower of Babel. God details sacrificial offerings. God says he did no such thing. The the sojourn in Egypt lasted 450 years. Then it says 430 years. Four generations of Levi. Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses. Kohath was born before going to Egypt and died at age 133. Amram died at age 137. Moses was 80 at the start of the Exodus. Even if Kahath was born in the first year of the sojourn, each father's sire, the next generation, the year of his death, the sojourn cannot have been over 250 years. And Jok and Jashabed must have been much older than her husband. To the extent she was not, the sojourn must have been even shorter. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham had only one son. God is omnipotent. Nothing is impossible with or for God. Although God was with Judah, together they could not defeat the plainsmen because the latter had iron chariots. Hagar casts Ishmael under a bush. Hagar is already 14 years old. God tempts, tests Abraham and Moses. God himself says that he does test, tempt. Paul says that God controls the extent of our temptations. God tests, tempts no one. Esau's wife, Bashmath, was the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Bashmath was the daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nabashoth. His wife, Ada, is the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Esau's wife, Mahalath, is the daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nabashoth. God changed Jacob's name at Peniel, crossing the Jabbok. He changed it at Pandanath. Padanaram. God says Jacob is to be called Jacob no longer. Henceforth his name is Israel. At a later time, God himself used the name Jacob. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz. Taman, Omar, Zephi, Gatam, Kenaz, Timnah, and Almalak. The Midianites of northern Arabia sold Joseph into slavery. It was the Ishmaelites of the Syrian desert. It was his brothers. 
70 of Jacob's family went to Egypt, 75. The fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Asakar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Leaves out the tribe of Dan, but adds Manasseh. Jacob was buried in a cave at Malch, at Machpelah, brought from Ephron the Hittite. He was buried in the sepulchre at Shechem, brought from the sons of Hamar. Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses. Habab was the father-in-law of Moses. God destroys all the cattle, including horses belonging to the Egyptians. The people and the cattle are afflicted with boils. All the firstborn of the cattle of the Egyptians are destroyed. After having all their cattle destroyed, then afflicted with boils, and then their firstborn cattle destroyed, the Egyptians pursued Moses on horseback. The number of men of military age who take part in Exodus is given as more than 600,000. Lying for women, children, and older men would probably mean that a total of about 2,000, I'm sorry, 2 million Israelites left Egypt. All the Israelites, including children, number only 7,000 at a later time. Jethro's idea to appoint judges, it was Moses' idea. God gave the law directly to Moses without using an intermediary. The law was ordained through angels by a mediator and intermediary. The Ten Commandments as we know them today, a slightly different version of the Ten Commandments, a completely different version about sacrificial laws specifically identified as the Ten Commandments inscribed, inscribed on stone tablets. God prohibits the making of any graven images whatsoever. God enjoins the making of two graven images. Children are to suffer for their parents' sins. Children are not to suffer for their parents' sins. No work is to be done on the Sabbath, not even lighting a fire. The commandment is permanent, and death is required for infractions regarding the Sabbath. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, after the disciples were criticized for breaking the Sabbath. Paul said the Sabbath commandment was temporary, and to decide for yourself regarding its observance. Honor your father and your mother is one of the Ten Commandments is reinforced by Jesus. Jesus says that he has come to divide families, that a man's foes will be those of his own household, that you must hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life to be a disciple. God prohibits adultery. God instructs Hosea to take a wife of harlotry, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, etc. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies. God prohibits the killing of the innocent. God orders or approves the complete extermination of groups of people, which include innocent women and slasher children. God is faithful and truthful. He does not lie. God condones a spirit of deception. God himself prohibits forever the eating of blood and fat. Jesus and Paul says that such rules don't matter, that are, they are only human injunctions. 24,000 died in the plague. 23,000 died in the plague. Offering for the new month is two bullocks, one ram, seven lambs. One bullock, one ram, six lambs. God enjoys the making of lambs' oats. Jesus forbids doing so, saying that they arise from evil or the devil. Aaron died on Mount Horeb. Aaron died in Masorah. After Aaron's death, the Israelites journeyed from Mount Horeb to Zalmanah to Panan. It was from Mosera to Gudgoda, Gudgada to Jotbath. A man can divorce his wife simply because she displeases him and both he and his wife can remarry. Divorce is wrong and to remarry is to commit adultery. Joseph's 12 stones ended up in the middle of the Jordan. They ended up in Gilgal. 
Joshua himself captured Debar. It was Othniel who thereby obtained the land of Caleb's daughter, Ashsa. Contradicts itself. It says there are 29 cities on the list, which actually contains 36. Sisera was sleeping when Jael killed him. Sisera was standing. The Amalekites are utterly destroyed. They're utterly destroyed again. They raid Ziklag and David smites them again. Jesse had seven sons plus David or eight total. He had seven total. Saul knew David well before the latter's encounter with Goliath. Saul did not know David at the time of his encounter with Goliath and had to ask about David's identity. David killed Goliath. Elhanan killed Goliath. Note, some translators insert the words the brother of before Elhanan. These are in addition to the earlier, earliest manuscripts in the apparent attempt to rectify this inconsistency. Ahimelech was high priest when David ate the bread. Abiathar was high priest at the time. Saul inquired of the Lord, but received no answer. Saul died for not inquiring of the Lord. Michal was childless. We say child-free now. She had five sons. David killed six. David killed 700 charioteers among the Ammonites. David killed 7,000 charioteers. The Lord inspired David to take the census. Satan inspired the census. The census count was Israel 800,000 and Judah 500,000. The census count was Israel 1,100,000 and Judah 470,000. David sinned in taking the census. David's only sin ever was in regard to another matter. Solomon had 40,000 horses or stalls for horses. He had 4,000 horses or stalls for horses. Solomon had 3,300 supervisors. He had 3,600 supervisors. The number of sheep and oxen sacrificed at Solomon's temple dedication was too many to be counted. Exact count of sheep and oxen sacrificed at Solomon's temple dedication. The two pillars were 18 cubits high. They were 35 cubits high. Solomon's quote-unquote molten sea held 2,000 baths. One bath equals about 8 gallons. It held 3,000 baths. 420 talents of gold were brought back from Apur. 450 talents of gold were bought back from Apur. I think it was Apur. Azad did not remove the high places. He did remove them. Basha died in the 26th year of King Asa's reign. Basha built the city in the 36th year of King Asa's reign. Amri became king in the 31st year of Asa's reign. And he reigned for a total of 12 years. Amri, Amri died and his son Ahab became king in the 38th year of Asa's reign. Note 31 through 38 equals a reign of 7 or 8 years. God himself causes a lying spirit. God abhors lying lips and delights in honesty. Hashafat did not remove the places he did remove them. Elijah went up to heaven. An unnamed man known to Paul went up to heaven and came back. Enoch was translated to heaven. Only the Son of Man, Jesus, has ever ascended to heaven. A dead child is raised well before the time of Jesus. Two dead sons are raised by Jesus himself. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began his reign. He was 42 years old when he began his reign. Some translations use 22 here in an attempt to rectify this discrepancy. The Hebrew is clear, however, that it's, it's 42. The Hebrew 
Words involved are Strong's 40 and 2, respectively. Jehush shot Ahaziah near Iblaan. Ahaziah, Ahaziah flew to Megado and died there. Ahaziah was found hiding in Samaria, brought to Jehu and put to death. The king of Syria and the son of the king of Israel did not conquer Ahaz. They did conquer Ahaz. Josiah died at Megiddo. Josiah died at Jerusalem. Jehoiachin Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. He was eight. The discrepancy has been corrected in some versions. Jehoiakim Jehoiakim was succeeded by his uncle. He was succeeded by his brother. Nebuchadnezzar arrived at Jerusalem on the seventh day. He arrived on the tenth day. The lineage is Jeram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham. It is Jeram, Oziah, Jotham, etc. Padiah was the father of Zerubbabel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. There is no injustice or partiality with the Lord. God has mercy on and hardens the heart of, of hardens the heart of whom he pleases. Given the whole congregation as 42. 1,360, while the actual sum of the numbers is about 30,000. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees vengeance. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls or stumbles. The earth was established forever. The earth will someday perish. Swords will be beaten into plowshares in the last days. Plowshares will be beaten into swords in the last days. Zedekiah was to die in peace. Instead, Zedekiah's sons are slain before his eyes. Zedekiah's sons are slain before his eyes. His eyes and then put out his bound in fetters, taken to Babylon, and left in prison to die. Mentions 30 pieces and could possibly be thought to be connected with the potter's field prophecy referred to in Matthew. Jeremiah is given as the source of the prophecy regarding the purchase of the potter's field. Note, there is no such prophecy in Jeremiah. The lineage of Jesus is traced through David's son Solomon. It is traced through David's son Nathan. Some apologists assert that Luke traces the lineage through Mary. That this is untrue is obvious from the context since... Luke and Matthew both clearly state that Joseph was Jesus' father. Jotham is the grandson of Jeram. This is three, three more generations between Jotham and Jeram. States that there were 14 generations from the captivity to Jesus, but only lists 13. Jacob was Joseph's father. Heli was, he, Heli was Joseph's father. The 38 generation, there were 28 generations from David to Jesus. There were 43. Annunciation occurred after Mary had conceived Jesus. It occurred before conception. Following the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, where they stay until after Herod's death. In order to avoid the murder of the firstborn by Herod. Herod slaughters all male infants two years old and under. Note, John the Baptist's cousin, though under two, is somehow spared without fleeing to Egypt. Following the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary remained in this area of Jerusalem for the presentation about 40 days, and then returned to Nazareth without ever going to Egypt. There is no slaughter of the infants. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets who would be called a Nazarene. The, this prophecy is not found in the Old Testament. While Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, he seldom referred to as Jesus the Nazarene.
The heavenly voice addressed the crowd, this is my beloved son. The voice addressed Jesus, you are my beloved son. Immediately following his baptism, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness resisting temptation by the devil. Three days after the baptism, Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. The devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, then to the mountaintop. First to the mountaintop, then to the pinnacle of the temple. One story about choosing Peter as a disciple, a different story, still another story. Divorce except on the grounds of unchastity is wrong. Divorce on any grounds is wrong. Jesus' prayer implies that God might lead us into temptation. God tempts no one. We are justified by works, not by faith. We are justified by faith, not by works. The centurion himself approaches Jesus to ask to heal his servant. The centurion sends elders to do the asking. Two demoniacs are healed in the gathering swine incident. One demoniac is healed in this incident. The ruler's daughter was already dead when Jesus raised her. She was dying, but not dead. The twelve apostles' disciples were Simon, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, that is, Labius, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. The above except that Thaddeus Labius is excluded and Judas the son of James is added and Judas Iscariot remains. Same as Matthew and Mark except that like Luke Thaddeus Labius is excluded. Judas the son of James is included in Matthias is chosen by the others to replace Judas Iscariot. Do not take sandal shoes or staves. Take sandal shoes and staves. He that believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. He that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He who confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. He that endures in the end will be saved. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Only he that is born of water and spirit will be saved. Jesus says that the law of Testament states that the priests profane the Sabbath but are blameless. No such statement is found in the Old Testament. Jesus says that those who are not with with him or against him. Jesus says that those who are not against him are for him. Jesus says that he should answer a plain yes or no, that his purpose is to bear witness to the truth, that his testimony is true. He equates lying with evil. Jesus tells his brother that he's not going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacle, then later goes secretly by himself. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. The transfiguration occurs six days after Jesus foretells his suffering. It takes place about eight days afterwards. The mother of James and John asks Jesus a favor for her sons. They ask for themselves. Jesus heals two blind men on the way to Jericho. Heals one blind man. The sequence was triumphal entry cleansing of the temple of Bethany. Triumphal, triumphal entry cleansing of the temple. Triumphal entry cleansing of the temple. Daily teaching in the temple. Cleansing of the temple early in his career, supper with Lazarus, triumphal entry, no cleansing of the temple following the triumphal entry. The disciples follow Jesus' instruction and bring of the animal or animals in the case of Matthew. Jesus finds the animal himself. Jesus rides two animals during his triumphal entry. Only one animal is involved. The fig tree withers immediately after being cursed by Jesus. The disciples notice and are amazed. 
The disciples first noticed that the tree had withered the day following. Jesus says that Zacharias, Zacharias, Zacharias was the son of Barakias, Barakiah. Zacharias was actually the son of Jehoiada, the priest. Note the name Barakias or Barakiah does not appear in the Old Testament. The anointing of Jesus takes place in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. It takes place at the house of a Pharisee in Galilee. The women ran from the temple with great joy. Mary told Peter and the other disciples that the body had been stolen. Would she feel great joy if she thought that the body had been stolen? The disciples reproach her. Some reproach her. Judas Iscariot reproach her. Judas made his bark with the chief priests before the meal. After the meal, the order of the communion was bread, then wine. It was wine, then bread. Je- Jesus is portrayed by Judas with a kiss, then seized. Jesus anticipates Judas' kiss. No actual kiss is mentioned. Jesus voluntary steps forward to identify himself, making it completely unnecessary for Judas to point him out. No kiss is mentioned. After his arrest, Jesus is first taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. First to Ananias, the son-in-law of Caiaphas, then to Caiaphas. Peter's second denial is still another is to still another maid. Apparently to the same maid, to a man, not a maid. To more than one day, the chief priest bought the field. Judas bought the field. Judas threw down the piece of silver and departed. He used the coins to buy the field. Judas hanged himself. He fell headlong, burst open, and his bowels gushed out. Jesus answers not a single charge at his hearing before Pilate. Jesus answers all charges at his hearing before Pilate. Jesus is giving a scarlet robe a sign of infamy, a purple robe a sign of royalty. Jesus' last recorded words are, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Fall into thy hands, I commit my spirit, it is finished. Jesus was offered vinegar to drink. It was wine and myrrh, and he did not drink it. Whatever it was, he did drink it. The centurion says, Truly this was the Son of God. He says, Truly this man was innocent or righteous. The women looked on from afar. They were near enough that Jesus could speak to his mother. A guard was placed at the tomb the, the day following the burial. No guard is mentioned. This is important since rumor had it that Jesus' body was stolen and the resurrection feigned. There could not have been a guard as far as the women were concerned since they were planning to enter the tomb with spices. Though the women were aware of the stone, they were obviously unaware of a guard. The first visitors to the tomb were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary too. Both of the above plus Salome three. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, married the mother of James and other women, at least five. Mary Magdalene, only one. It was toward dawn when they arrived. It was after sunrise. It was at early dawn. It was still dark. The stone was still in place when they arrived. It was rolled away later. The stone had already been rolled or taken away. An angel arrived during an earthquake, rolled back the stone that sat on it outside the tomb. No earthquake, only one young man sitting inside the tomb. No earthquake, two men suddenly appear standing inside the tomb. No earthquake, two angels are sitting inside the tomb. The visitors ran to tell the disciples. They said nothing to anyone. They told the eleven all the rest. The disciples returned home. Mary remained outside weeping. Jesus' first resurrection appearance was fairly near the tomb. It was in the vicinity of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, was right at the tomb. On his first appearance to them, Jesus lets Mary Magdalene and the other Mary hold him by his feet. On his first appearance to Mary, Jesus forbids her to touch him since he has not yet ascended to the Father. A week later, although he has not yet ascended to the Father, Jesus tells Thomas to touch him. 
Although some doubted, the initial reaction of those that heard the story was one of belief since they followed the revealed instructions. The initial reaction was one of disbelief. All doubted. The order of resurrection appearances was Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, then the eleven. Is Mary Magdalene, the two, then two others, then the eleven? It was two, then Simon Peter, question mark, then the eleven. Is Mary Magdalene, then the disciples without Thomas, then the disciples with Thomas, and the eleven disciples again? It was Cephas, Peter, and question mark, then the twelve, which which twelve? Judas was dead, question mark. Then five hundred plus brethren, although. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 says there are only about 120, then James, then all of the apostles, then Paul. Jesus quotes a statement that allegedly appears in Isaiah according to, Matthew chapter, according to Mark chapter 1 verse 2. No such statement appears in Isaiah. Jesus began his ministry after the arrest of John the Baptist, before the arrest of John the Baptist. A demon cries out that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Note, this would mean that the demon is of God. Jesus says that he uses parables so that the meaning of some of his teachings will remain secret to at least some persons. He explains the meanings of the parables only to his disciples. He thanks God for hiding some things from the wise while revealing them to babes. Jesus says that he always taught openly, never secretly. Herod was the source of the belief that John had been raised from the dead. Others were the source. Herod was perplexed by the belief. It was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. It was after the sixth hour since Jesus was still before Pilate had not yet been sentenced at that time. The women came to the tomb to anoint the body. The body had already been anointed and wrapped in linen cloth. The women actually entered the tomb. They did not. The ascension took place presumably from a room while the disciples were together seated at a table, probably in or near Jerusalem. It took place outdoors after supper at Bethany near Jerusalem. It took place outdoors after 40 plus days at Mount Olivet. At Mount Olivet. Mount Olivet. No mention is made of an ascension, but if it took place at all, it must have been from a mountain in Galilee since Matthew ends there. Satan entered Jesus, I'm sorry, Satan entered Judas before the supper. It was during the supper. The women followed Joseph to the tomb, saw how the body had been laid, then went to prepare spices with which to anoint the body. Joseph bought, brought spices with him, 75 or 100 pounds, anoint the body as the women should have noticed. Water is turned into wine and called the first sign. Tell us that many more signs followed this first sign. Tell us that he later heals the centurion son and that this is the second sign. Jesus does not judge. Jesus does judge. God does not judge. God does judge. Jesus says that if he bears witness to himself, his testimony is not true. Jesus says that even if he bears witness to himself, his testimony is true. Jesus, according to John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus quotes a statement that he says appears in Scripture, example, the Old Testament. No such statement is found in the Old Testament. Peter asks Jesus where he is going. Thomas does the same. Jesus says that none of them have asked him where he is going. Jesus quotes a statement that he says appears in Scripture, meaning the Old Testament. No such statement is found in the Old Testament. Read John chapter 20, verse 9. Um, Those present at Paul's conversion heard the voice but saw no one. They saw a light but did not hear a voice. Those present at Paul's conversion stood, they fell to the ground. Shortly after his conversion, Paul went to Damascus, then Jerusalem, where he was introduced to the apostles by Barnabas. They spent some time with them, going in and out among them. He made the trip three years later, then saw only Peter and James. Quotes Jesus having said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. No such statement of Jesus found elsewhere in the Bible.
according to Acts chapter 20, verse 35. God has mercy on and hardens the heart of whom he pleases. God deceives the wicked so as to be able to condemn them. Yet God wants all to be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 11, alleged Old Testament, quote, no such statement in the Old Testament. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything that might cause your brother to stumble or be offended. Let no one pass judgment on you in matters of food and drink. James chapter 4, verse 5, quotes an alleged Old Testament scripture verse not found in the Old Testament. All of the grass on earth is burned up and then an army of locusts which is about to be turned loose on earth is instructed not to harm the grass. Now you fully understand why I practice no religion. This is my statement and my closing thoughts to all the believers listening. Jesus would want you to join him in the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, the Him Too movement, and the Church Too movement. Because if you don't do for trauma survivors you're not doing for Jesus. If you're not doing for abuse survivors, you're not doing for Jesus. If you're not doing for victimization survivors, you're not doing for Jesus. If you're not doing for sex crime survivors, you're not doing for Jesus. Because there's stories of Jesus Interacting with the oppressed. You can't say that you're Christian and oppress the oppressed with the oppressors making yourself an oppressor too. Now, and I say this, empathy is my religion and my religion is empathy. final statement would be that I am a religious skeptic and I am proud of my religious skepticism. <laughs>